Aquaman and Superman, Animal Man and Plastic Man, Firestorm and Nuclear Man, Batman and Hawkman, 2D Man and Hour Man. Who are all these people, man? They're all part of the DC. Who's who? Booster Boy and Booster Gold, Lightning Lass and Hippolyta, Phantom Stranger, District and Arisia and Woozy Winks. Hey, hey, hey. What? What about that one guy? What guy? Mr. Pretzel, Mr. Lipstick, Mr. Mitzelfuzzle? Mr. Mitzi's Pitlick? Yeah, him. He's also part of the DC. Who's who? Hello, and welcome to the second episode of Who's Who in the DC Universe, a proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. I'm one of your hosts, the Irredeemable Shag. Along with me, as always, is my co-host, the esteemed Rob Kelly. How you doing, buddy? How you doing, Shag? I am very, very excited about this. We, you know, we're into the loose leaf. This is my era of who's who that I love so much. I mean, I love it all, but this was an era where I was so steeped in reading DC Comics. Oh, so exciting. And we did the last episode. We, you know, finally after, what, like a year, year and a half or whatever, we got back in the swing. <laughs> Something like that, yeah. And boy, do the listeners respond. <laughs> the most amount of comments any podcast we've ever posted have, has received. <laughs> Unbelievable. And only 26% of that was Ciscoid. So that's that not bad. Right? Yeah, that's right. It's not bad. <laughs> well, we've got a lot to talk about. We've got issue number two to get through. We've got a ton of feedback. So why don't we jump right into the in-stock trades? What do you say? Good idea. Awesome. Folks, this episode of the Who's Who podcast is sponsored in part by InStockTrades.com. InStockTrades is your best online source for trades, hardcovers, and other collected editions, all for up to 42% off with free shipping for orders of $50 or more. What you got, buddy? All right, I have Black Hammer, Volume 1, Secret Origins. That would be a great name for a podcast. Uh, that's a book from uh, by that's Dark. A Dark Horse? What? Yep. Uh, this is a DC show. Just let me – can I finish anything for Pete's sakes? Do it right, and I'm I won't sure, interrupt you. I am doing it right. You got to – oh, my God. I, I'm hosting this episode, <laughs> everybody. This is going to go really fast because I'm mad now. The publisher is Dark Horse. The writer is Jeff Lemire, who everybody knows is a very popular mm. and good writer. The artist is Dean Ormston. It says, once they were heroes, now banished from existence by a multiversal crisis, mm, the old <laughs> champions of Spiral City lead simple lives in a timeless farming town. But as they attempt to free themselves from this strange purgatory, a mysterious stranger works to bring them back into action for one last adventure. Collects one issues one to six of this series. Now, maybe many of you are probably wondering, why the heck am I talking about this on Who's Who? That's because this collected edition features Who's Who pages of the characters. Oh. See? There you go, smarty pants. I saw these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, that, well the, that, then why did you cast aspersions on my choice? I forgot. Oh, fine. And it's you? Yeah, okay. The normal price is $14.99. In stock trades price is $8.69. That's 42% off. Now, of course, you have to buy this book from In Stock Trades, but if you want to see the Who's Who pages, you can go to Amazon, look up this book, and you can see a bunch of the Who's Who pages. They are done like the classic Who's Who with the Sir Prince, the Dot Matrix, the whole bit. They are beautiful. I have to think this is Jeff Lemire's doing because we all know he's a big, you know, wrote for DC. He's a huge comic book nerd, so I have to think this was this was all his doing. It's super fun. You get classic Who's Who listings of this book. This these listings are so beautiful, it makes me want to extend the Who's Who show so we can <laughs> read Black Hammer and then do these listings. But in the meantime, buy this book, Black Hammer: Secret Origins, Volume One. Well, it, it, should this do you think be the point where we tell the listeners the plan? I mean, we mapped it out. Once we're done with the loose leaves. We're actually moving into the Marvel Universe handbook. We're just <laughs> yeah. going to call it Who's Marvel. 
And we we have the whole thing planned out for another, what, seven years or whatever. We're going to blow past the the, the, Uhamu or not girls and show them up a thing or two, right? And, uh, you know, I'm excited about it. I think Captain America and Baron Zemo are going to be fun for us. Trying to do Al Hotmu is a fool's errand, and I will not be part of it. <laughs> where, what I, where I was going was, was a little bit of an April Fool's Day joke is what I was shooting for there. Thanks for playing along, buddy. Um, by the way, you we should tell everyone. You know me by now, right? <laughs> well, we should let you guys know, for those of you listening at home, this episode, if you're listening late, this episode actually comes out April Fool's Day. So rather than doing a gag and doing a fake episode, which I did tell Rob, he should just release an episode that goes, who's who? Oh, we're not doing it this week. April Fool's! Uh, instead, we're just going to try and have a little fun throughout the episode, except Rob has no sense of humor. So yeah, that, we'll that would have gone over really well. <laughs> I think it would have been great. Like, you know, a 30-second MP3 that just goes, April Fools! Uh, we would have been heroes. Anyway, uh, my Instock Trades pick is Flash by Mark Wade, trade paperback of Volume 1. Now, if you know anything about The Flash in the 1990s, Mark Wade had a run that lasted almost 10 freaking years. He redefined the character. He took the Flash from a place where he wasn't as popular as he should be at that point. You know, when you think about the Pantheon of DC right now, Fla- I mean, Flash is kind of headlining a TV. Well, he is headlining a TV show that is like, you know, there's four TV shows all, it started with Arrow, but Flash is kind of the pinnacle of this thing, right? Well, back in, you know, the, the mid-90s, Flash wasn't all that popular. So Mark Wade comes on the book, right, and in 1990, and writes the hell out of it. And it was introduced with a storyline called Born to Run, took off, introduced the Speed Force and uh, Impulse and Max Mercury, you know, all these things, and brought it all together. It was fantastic. Anyway, this trade paperback is the first one collecting Mark Wade's run, you know, written by Mark Wade, uh, art by Greg LaRock and other artists, collects issues 62 through 68 and annual numbers 4 and 5 and Flash Special number 1. So, again, that's Born to Run going forward from there uh 368 pages and i promise you these are fantastic comics guys full color normally retails for $24.99 42% off right now so it's only $14.49 that is a heck of a deal did, did you ever read these rob i've read it sparingly and the stuff i i read i actually liked i'm not sure why i didn't keep up with it but yeah wade's run on flash is like one of like the great run of superhero comics yeah i mean it's for me when i think of wade it's like you know wade's history involves uh, Flash involves Captain America uh, and, and, and involves Daredevil. I mean, I know he's done a million other things, and someone else is screaming their favorite thing. But but I mean, those Kingdom three things. Come. To... Well, there's that. Yeah, that's true. Okay, I always think of that more as an Alex Rock's book, really. But anyway, uh, it, just it, the, the whole thing just started with no story. It just appeared on Alex's drawing board. No, it actually did. It, it was Alex's idea. <laughs> you should read the history of it. Anyway. Um, <sighs> So, anyway, go and buy these things, folks. Uh, please visit InStockTrades.com. <laughs> <All right. laughs> what a you know. segue. I think that thing's just gone on a train wreck right there. So, all right. If this is your first episode of Who's Who, seriously, just stop and go back one episode. It's really that hard. Just one more back. Anyway, uh, if this is your first time, Who's Who, uh, the definitive – I'm sorry. No, not definitive. Mm. Who's Who in the DC Universe was a 16-issue miniseries retailed for $4.95 in 1990. So, therefore, that translates to like uh, $4 billion an issue. Uh, it's, a, it's a loose-leaf format. So, each page – 
you actually separate and put it into binders. You get 24 entries per issue. On the front side is this awesome pinup of art uh, with like the character logo or sometimes just a font. Uh, on the back side is all the text with, with some of the inset images and it's got the personal data like you know height, weight, powers, and weapons, all that sort of stuff. And one of the cool things about who's who in the DC Universe, besides being loose leaf and you can organize it any way you want, which we talked about at length last time, is these fun little borders. They're categories. So you have red for hero, black for villain, blue for supporting cast, purple for supernatural, which really bothers Rob, orange for aliens, green for geography, and yellow for technology. And the thing about the, one of the things that differentiates this who's who versus the previous one, besides the whole loose leaf format, is this who's who really focuses on the current DC universe at the time, rather than the entire breadth of DC's history. And the alphabetical order is they just pick a smattering of characters from any letter so that they never go out of date. They're never stale. They're never stuck in just doing A's that issue, which is great. It makes for a lot of fun. Now, as we go through this, we're going to uh, we're gonna post some of these on our website, aren't we, Rob? Yes, we are. Firewaterpodcast.com. Yep, go up to the Shows tab, go to Who's Who, and there'll be a gallery post attached to this one. We'll post, well, if there's only 24 issues in the, uh, you know, things in the issue, in the, in the, whatever it's called, the comic, uh, I don't know how many we'll post. But either way, our goal is to describe the images and the text uh, enough so that you don't have to actually have them in front of you. If you want to go dig them out of your binders in your mom's garage, feel free. Um, but hopefully, you'll ha- be able to get enough from the podcast so you don't have to go try and dig that out and drive your car at the same time and go off and crash into a fountain or something. So, all right. Exciting, exciting. So, unfortunately, folks, I'm not leading this time, so I'm terribly sorry. Uh, Rob's going to be leading this time. So, it's, it's a little, I know, I hear all the everyone home going, oh. But just a little background on this particular issue before I turn it over. Who's Who number two is cover dated September 1990, but it was on the shelves July 31st, 1990. So summer's coming to an end. you got to go back to school soon. So, all right. Rob, why don't you take it away? All right. This is going to be the first 37-minute episode of Who's Who. It's going to be great. Uh, <laughs> now, on the cover is uh, The Flash, uh, which makes sense. He's one of the marquee heroes of the book. And we'll see uh, over the course of the next uh, 14 issues like how they sort of really did keep the marquee heroes, like one per book, I would say. You know, they didn't really double up for the most part. Flash is the marquee character, of course, and as Shag said, this issue was on sale July 31st, 1990. Now, one of the things that I had that occurred to me when I was looking at this book, and I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me before, was that why doesn't this iteration of Who's Who have original covers? Uh, that was one of the, my the favorite things of the other uh, series was, was those jam covers, you know, where all the characters are hanging out doing funny things. And this doesn't have that. This is just a repeated image that you see inside. And so I wrote to the editor of this particular iteration of Who's Who, which is Michael Yuri, who is my boss over on uh, at Back Issue. And I, <laughs> I asked him, so why didn't you do original covers? Now, my assumption was that because this book was meant to be yanked apart, uh, and, you know, of course, as you know, uh, you know, all all the entries slotted in different ways that the cover was kind of regarded as uh, disposable. Uh, and on top of it, you know, doing a cover would be extra expensive because you have to hire the artist to draw like 15 characters. And so I could see them saying, look, it costs more money to do a cover and it's probably something that's going to get tossed away or at the very least not, you know, uh, uh, What's the word I'm looking for? Like, not organized with the rest of the entries. But this is what Michael said. He said, Rob, until your question, I never even considered producing original covers for the Loose Leaf Who's Who, though I did commission the two notebooks cover art. I don't think we even discussed it internally once we agreed upon the Loose Leaf format. 
So I was kind of wrong, and they never even came up. And then I did mention to Michael that the overwhelming re response we got in the listener feedback on the first issue, and he said, I'm pleasantly surprised to learn of the feedback you've received. I'm proud of version two of Who's Who, but I always felt like it was the ugly stepsister of the original version. Nice to know it has fans. So there you go, a little word from Michael Yuri. Well, I would say, folks, go ahead and leave comments in the thread uh, praising Michael Yuri's work on this or your thoughts on it because I would love to share some of those with Michael because, you know, who knows? Maybe we'll talk to him about the thing at some point because, you know, if, if he understands that there's so much love out here for it, it might, you know, everyone wants to hear that they did a good job, right? Absolutely. I'm not going to tell Rob that, but, I mean, no. it's, you know, everyone wants to hear that. Now, I have a couple thoughts to share there. See, I made the assumption that they didn't commission a new cover because, uh, because it was shrink-wrapped on the shelf. You know, the front cover making it represent it's not like you would see the, the double entry you're not you're going to see the flash on the cover and see the flash on the inside when you're flipping through it on the shelf because it's shrink wrapped so they want to pick as you said a marquee character and like one of the best drawings to put on the cover that's why i assume they didn't commission a new cover um but and, and obviously cost as you said now uh here's where we start talking about rob being wrong right out of the gate folks this is amazing so rob kept going on about how flash was one of the big characters marky i just said moments ago that flash wasn't popular at this point he's like still he, he had his own tv show he wait at see see that's what it is that's the real reason flash is on the cover rob because in two months time the flash tv show will start right Okay. Well, see, his comic wasn't selling that well, though. I mean, the the it went from the the uh, Mike Barron era to the William Mester Loeb's era, and sales weren't that hot. But he was and, always a marquee character of the DC universe, though. No matter what his sales were. Same thing with Wonder Woman. Wonder Woman never sold any comics, but merchandising she was huge. So okay. Flash is that's that's a fair comparison. Yeah. Well, they actually Wonder Woman was selling pretty good under Perez, but um, yeah. So so that's I think it, I honestly it would have made more sense to put a Batman or Wonder Woman on the cover of issue number two, really. But I think the Flash got it because in two months' time the show starts. That's why I think he got it. Okay, that makes sense. Like you said, I, there's a reason why he was one of the. He was always in the Justice League. You know, he yep. never left, so he was always a marquee character, just regardless of what his sales figures were. He's always a, always a big deal, and it makes sense. So, yep. anyway, uh, anyway, we're very happy to hear that that, that Michael uh, is appreciating the feedback. And I will say, uh, I'm not, I don't, I'm not choosing to speak for him, but I would say if you see Michael Yuri at a convention and you want to tell him how much you love the loose leaf, chase him down, tackle him, uh, tell him how, how much he wants to know. I, I would wave the, the, the leaf loose leaf pages or the notebook, uh, the binders in his face. I'm sure he'll love it. Don't tackle. Don't wave things in his face. Politely approach him. I don't know if that was Rob's attempt what? at April Fool's humor or whatever. I, I think he'd like it. I don't know. Crazy. <laughs> as, as he crumples to the ground <laughs> yes. underneath a pile of Keith G. Baker. Good. <laughs> <laughs> I would not want to be under a pile of Keith G. Baker. I'm just saying. <laughs> I don't know that anybody would. No, there really isn't any. I don't think there's anybody that we've met that I really want to. Never mind. That's a whole other thing. I'm not touching that so, one. So, okay. <laughs> there's a whole lot of hot fans, so I'm not touching it. <laughs> Maybe Gutierrez. I don't know. Anyway, uh, let's Been get started. It wasn't, wasn't fun. <laughs> let's get started. Uh, we have a little intro. Here's how to use Husu. I think we can all figure that out. Thank you very much. Well, uh, I love that he's repeated what he had in the first issue where he talks about how the binder. <laughs> The binder will be a, a great back-to-school gift. He says it again. <laughs> like he yes. did last year. Want to get made fun of, kids? Bring that into school. And that uh, will come into play in the feedback. And as we noticed uh, in the first issue, um, Arlene Lowe, copy editor, so far doing a great job filling the shoes of Brenda Pope. Because we didn't find one mistake in the first book, I don't think. 
I, I think it's I think it's been a, a home run so far. We'll All see right. if Lean can hold it up. All right. So first listing, Booster Gold. Uh, I know uh, Shag's all excited about that. He gives uh, he gets a creator credit on the back. It says created by Dan Jurgens, of course. And it said the, the main image is a drawing by Dan. There, it's uh, Brewster flying and flying it over the city. And we've got all those. If you see, you see uh, is that that's Skeets, right? It kind of looks a little different than um, what I remember Skeets I looking don't... like. You know what? That may have been intended to be Skeets, but they didn't color it like Skeets. Right. That's what's so throwing me off a little. I think at this point now it's just a rocket ship. Okay. Yeah, right. So we see you know, Booster in front of his futuristic cityscape, and it gives into a history. It's interesting uh, that said it was written – the text is by Dan Jurgen, so I guess Dan felt okay to kind of make fun of his own character. Because at the bottom – he re- at the, not the bottom, at the end it says uh, – Booster, it says, uh, many people will be surprised for Booster Gold is not regarded to be highly intelligent, organized, or even competent. Which is, I mean, I know they're talking about that's the public's persona of him. That's not who he really is. But it's just kind of a funny way to end uh, a listing for your own character. Um, one thing I do have to mention that really threw me for a loop. Height, 6'5". <laughs> Since when? Like, he towers over Batman? Like, what is that about? I think artists that have drawn Booster Gold in Justice League, Kevin McGuire, I think they need to be informed that he's 6'5", because I don't think that that's ever been indicated in any comic book of Booster Gold I've ever seen. I'm going to have to look at that. Uh, I'll have to pay attention to that, because, yeah, I don't think he's supposed to be that tall. Uh, if, if we can go back to the cover for just a second, you did miss uh, one artist. I mean, being an artist, I thought you would have noticed, but um, an artistic thing going on here. Booster's in the front, ground, front, like you said. You talked about the futuristic you know, cityscape behind him. That's only on the left. Right. The left-hand side is half, the 25th right. century. The right-hand side is the 20th century. So it's showing that he's a man of two times, which I thought was very clever. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah, it's nice. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's, so it's, it's, I mean, it's for a new hero, it's everything you would want. You know what I mean? It's like, it's like a great, you know, straight up, straightforward image of him. He's, you see his costume and he's got his power. He's flying. We see him in the, uh, the time bubble. Oh, we do see Skeets there on the other side. You're right. Mm-hmm. There we see Skeets colored uh, accurately. And then the powers of weapons gets into his suit. He talks about the space museum. I mean, this is like, I, it makes sense. Dan Jurgens did a perfect job of summarizing this character in just one page. Well, it's, you know, when we talked to Dan, uh, we did in the first iteration of Who's Who, I think it was episode 27, uh, we interviewed Dan. And he talked about how this was his first, this particular one right here was the first time he got to write the entry for Booster Gold. Even though he invented the character and wrote the book, he couldn't, he didn't get to write the previous Booster Gold entries. So this was the first time he actually got to write, which is kind of neat. Um, it is interesting, though, that, you know, at this point, his ongoing series has been over for years. And he's been primarily a JLI character. So it's really the goofy version of Booster is what we is in publication at this point. And yet Dan wrote the entry other than you know, that one comment about he's not taken seriously he did write it pretty much straight he mm-hmm. wrote it kind of as a serious character You're like you would if you were reading the jli book and you read this you'd be like huh i guess that's booster where's the whole like kahui 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 thing you know it's it, it's a different kind of straightness um i love seeing the space museum mentioned i just i, I love the space museum and I, I got to do that on secret origins with ryan which made, which i loved um i, I do want to mention on the front side they used his logo from his comic book which you don't see very often which is where the s are actually dollar signs mm-hmm. and the gold looks like gold i love that because you know it's, he was all about the money uh then interestingly in, in the time and place and it's not mentioned here just uh justice league america number 42 is on the shelves at this point well five months before that booster actually quit the jli like in a huff 
he stormed out. He got tired of being treated incompetent. He got tired of being treated as a joke. So he actually quit the JLI five months before this, and in three months' time from now, he actually forms the conglomerate, which was going to be his attempt of having a corporate, more serious superhero team. And so I'm kind of surprised they didn't mention that at this point, that he had left the JLI. Hmm. Okay. I don't, I don't. I must have not been reading the book by then. I don't remember that at all. Yeah, it was it, 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 uh, the conglomerate were featured in Justice League Quarterly. So, hmm. okay, yeah, yep. no memory of that at all. All right, so so for um, first appearance, Booster Gold number one, February nineteen eighty six. So for more on Booster Gold, check out the Silver and Gold podcast with our buddies Jay Jones and Roy Cleary. You also can check out the Boosterific website, which is fantastic, or you can listen to the JLI Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. All right. Next up is Captain Boomerang. Everybody knows him, one of the great Flash villains. No creator credits here. Uh, I have to assume it's either Gardner Fox or John Broom with Carmen Infantino. I haven't looked that up. Sounds, sounds about right. Sounds about right. His first appearance was The Flash, number 117, which was in December 1960. He's been around a long time. The uh, art is by Geoff Isherwood, and I really like this piece because I like the perspective. Uh, it's We got him on the steps leaving a bank, which presumably he has just robbed because he's, he's got some like bags attached to his uh, his hip there, and he's throwing his boomerangs, and we see the one boomerang like way in the foreground, and then he's kind of in the background. It's you know, perspective's hard to do. I never was able really to quite do it. And so uh, I appreciate Geoff Isher- Isherwood uh, giving this one a try because it really does kind of put that across. And they talk about his powers, and we see him with uh, Amanda Waller, and we see him out in the uh, the, uh, the outback. Of course, he's from Australia, and we see him attacking the Flash with his boomerangs. It does mention that uh, his boomerangs do have the power to launch him into outer space, which is... Pretty amazing. I was like, you know, like, I mean, it's not anything goofier than what went on in the '60s Flash comic, but that was uh, that's pretty amazing. And there is something else it mentions here. It it talks about um, that uh, Captain Boomerang's kind of got a history that that stretches back to World War II, and it's sort of funny because you just think that like all superhero comics have to keep moving up in time. You know, <laughs> I mean, when I was a kid. The JSA were from the World War II, and they were like 30 years, you know, they would have been retired for 20 to 30 years. Well, nowadays you can't have World War II superheroes because they'd all be ancient or even dead uh, mm-hmm. without, without the help of uh, a mysterious being, of course. So you have to keep, you know, time marches on. And you, you can't have any of these characters having that kind of history anymore. Well, crikey, oh, I really like this. I can't do it. I was going to try and do an Australian thing. Um, I, the Jeff Isher, I, think, I don't think it's Geoff. I think it's just Jeff. The Jeff Isherwood art is really, really nice. I completely agree. I love the front image, not just for the perspective, but I also like his body language. I like his face, uh, the backside, his little you know, class portrait looks really sharp. With the, I love his jaunty little angled, uh, tilted at an angle hat, all that business. Now, Jeff Isherwood was drawing Suicide Squad, by the way, at this point, which is why he got the nod for this, doing this post. Um, a couple. A lot of the entry talks about his lineage. Talks about how his, you know, he, he was raised by this family in Australia. It turns out it's not really his father. His mother had an affair, and there's this other guy in America, and blah blah blah. And um, so, and, and how he got became Captain Boomerang. He was actually hired to be a corporate sponsor uh, or co- corporate character as Captain Boomerang, and ended up then starting committing crimes. So they talk about all that in the entry as well. And one of the things I found interesting was it talks about his friend named Mick. Wentworth, right? They talk a lot about this guy named Mick Wentworth. I don't know if that went anywhere, but I started thinking about this. Okay, well, Mick, first of all, if you're thinking about Flash Rogues, you know, because he's obviously one of the predominant Flash Rogues, Mick was uh, Heat Wave, right? And then Wentworth, well, Wentworth Miller in real life Ah. now plays Captain Cold. I'm like, wow, that's a crazy coincidence. 
You know, what a crazy, crazy world it ends up in. And Captain Boomerang, really, by definition, guys, he's a, he's a huge old mort. I mean, with his power set and what he can do, he is, except because of ex- ep- uh, excellent writers in The Flash in the 60s and then John Ostrander in the 80s, they figure out a way to use him and make him interesting, which is just crazy. A guy with boomerangs? Really? But it just works. He, he's a fantastic character. He's a f- movie star. Yeah, he's a movie star on top of it. It's, uh, anything is possible. Uh, by the way, don't ever do that Australian accent again, okay? Just don't do that. It was terrible. Throw another shrimp on the bobby. Yeah, see, if I want to hear bad Australian accents, I'll listen to Waiting for Doom, all right? So that's, just that's don't true. do them. That's true. Yeah. Speaking of all that, uh, the boomer background I was talking about with the whole like parental heritage and stuff, on the shelves at the same time this issue, Who's Who, was Suicide Squad number 44, and that happened to be a uh, Captain Boomerang flashback issue, which I think is where they reveal a lot of that family stuff. So it was good timing for this to appear. Also, you know, it's a Flash-themed issue. It's good to have to Captain Boomerang. So for more on Captain Boomerang, there's several places you can check. Obviously, you can go see the Suicide Squad movie, and I felt like Captain Boomerang was pretty well represented in the film, actually. Uh, you can check out the Task Force X podcast by our buddy Aaron Head Moss, or you can go see the movie Return to Me, just like a boomerang, starring uh, Minnie Driver and Anthony Durso. So, good stuff. <laughs> I don't remember Anthony in that movie, but I tend to pay attention to Minnie Driver only when she's in movies, so. I understand. Well, yeah. it's... Uh... You know, I should have – did I remind everyone it's April Fool's? Maybe? I don't know. Anyway. I think they got it at this point. Okay. Uh, <laughs> next is Changeling, of course, from the Doom Patrol. Hey, I'm waiting for Doom again. Changeling and uh, Teen Titans, our alter ego Garfield Logan. The art is by Tom Grummet. Uh, I, I tend to say the underrated Tom Grummet. I don't know. Is he underrated? Maybe he isn't. Maybe he's – I, I Maybe think everyone knows how great he is. I don't know. But I think he's like – his style is just beautiful – for superhero comics. He's like one of the perfect guys to do it. And very consistent, I, too. I think in the 90s he wasn't underappreciated. I think nowadays he's underappreciated. Okay. All right. Fair, fair, fair enough. Uh, we see him here with his mullet. I don't remember that look. Thank goodness. Uh, we, we see him transforming from like a like a cougar or a lion, not a lion, but like a panther or something, into an eagle and then into a uh, an ape and then into his final form. He's got a kind of a different costume here. And on the back, we see him with Robot Man, and and then we see him with his dad, and then later on with the Teen Titans. And it mentioned something here that I don't, I didn't ever know. Maybe mm-hmm. I did, and I I should mention Alve Inkta, not just Tom Grumman. Mm-hmm. Um, but it mentions something here about changing that I either didn't know or completely forgot. It says quick changes between animal forms also weakens him. I had no memory of that. I like that detail. I think that's hmm. cool that, like, of course it makes sense. Because, I mean, if you – it kind of reminds me of that line from Star Trek VI where uh, – what's, what's her name? The model, Iman talks about transforming, and she's like, it takes a lot of effort, which is like, mm-hmm. of course it would. It's a lot of you're, – you're transforming your whole body. It's not just nothing. So I like that little detail. I mean, yeah, think about it. It's not just your skin changing, but, like, your bones have your to mass, restructure yeah. and shape each other. I mean, yeah. Um, I The the Perez, uh, Wolfman Teen Titans, I don't know intimately backwards and forward. In fact, I haven't even read all of it. I've read lots of it, but not all of it. So I'd, um, I was more of an X-Men guy during that era, so I don't really know if that's a new trait or not. I, I will tell you that um, – First of all, yes, I hate the costume and I hate the hair. Uh, this this is a terrible era for Changeling, by the way. It's really, really awful. The, the character was sort of lost at this point. They didn't know what to do with him anymore because they were trying to take Teen Titans – or sorry, New Titans at that point into a different direction. They tried all these different things with the characters. They gave him a, like a really hard edge. They made it for a while he could only transform into monsters rather than animals, trying to find some sort of you know 90s edge for him, and none of it really worked. They would have been better off, honestly, just moving him out of the Teen Titans and putting him somewhere else 
where his his humor would have worked. I mean, even in the JLI or something, really, would have been a better home for him than keeping him in the Titans and just wearing him into the ground. It's very sad. Um, I will say I do like the name Changeling better than Beast Boy. I've, I've never been a fan of the name he's Beast Boy. He's back to Beast Boy on the cartoon, I know. of course, yeah. I know. Uh, it, well, he's been back to Beast Boy for quite a while. Um, I guess it was the cartoon that probably did it. Because, like, the, the, new, the, the, the anime-style Teen Titans cartoon came out, jeez, what, 2001, 2003, yeah, somewhere in there? a long time, yeah. Yeah, and, and he was called Beast Boy there, and they, they changed it in the comic book about the same time. Now, if you ask DC, they say, no, we changed it. We didn't change it for the cartoon. Of course they changed it for the cartoon. But anyway, uh, Grummet, you can't say anything bad about him. He's absolutely gorgeous. It's just unfortunate that Changeling is shackled with this look at this point. And New Teen Titans at this point was on issue number 69, or sorry, New Titans, which means they were just two months away from the Titans hunt, which would have an adverse effect on Changeling as well, actually. So. Hmm. Okay. Um, I, I was I, no longer reading the book at that point. Titans Hunt is so good, Rob. It's it, well, maybe not by the end, but it starts so good. So it's actually what got me reading Titans, actually. So um, for more, I, and I love that you call Robot Man Robot Man. I, it's I don't know if that's a New Jersey thing or Robot Man. I just love. It. So anyway, if you, for more on Changeling, check out the uh, Titan Up the Defense podcast where they talk about Teen Titans. Check out uh, our Tom Panarese, our buddy, does uh, the Pop Culture Affidavit, where he did a lot of posts on the Teen Titans. You could listen to the Waiting for Doom podcast, where they cover some classic Doom Patrol issues and include Beast Boy. Or you can listen to From Crisis to Crisis for some more information on really bad mullets. I would also suggest you could rent either of the two films, uh, Changeling, starring Angelina Jolie, directed by Clint Eastwood, or the 1980 horror movie Changeling, starring uh, Charlton Heston. Neither one has to do with this character, but uh, they're, they're both called Changeling. I thought you were going to say Gorillas in the Mist, but okay. <laughs> so, uh, next up is Deadline. Next, Woo! Despero no, no, is drawn no. by Adam Hughes. All right, Deadline. All right, okay, it's Mort time. Deadline. Yeah. I know, he's a Starman villain. You're very excited. I am. Created by Roger Stern and Tom Lyle. First appeared in Starman number 15. I'm, he just looks so stupid. I'm sorry. I just, he, he looks like, uh, he, you know what? He's a character in like a total justice line. He just, that's what he looks like to me. He's not that far gone. Now, come on. Yeah, let's, right, be, let's be a little racist. Why don't you make the case for Deadline? Okay. Well, I will say I'm not a fan of the uh, Ghostbusters red circle on his forehead. Okay. That part I've never liked. Okay. But he, he basically looks like. Perfect place to aim like, the bullet. What's that? Perfect place to aim the bullet. He's wearing uh, – basically, he's just an orange and black combat armor is what it is, guys. And he almost looks a little bit like a, uh, a more segmented version of the Checkmate armor, really, kind of, um, with, with a Peacemaker helmet. It's, it's no different than any other early 90s character. It's not completely roided out. It's not – there's not too many pouches or anything like that. It's, he is just a armored combatant, you know? And, he's, and he apparently stole Mr. Miracle's flying discs because he's flying around on those. <laughs> And the thing – one of the reasons I like him though is because he really became kind of the generic bad guy for the 90s. Like I don't, I don't know if you remember. When you and I covered the previous Who's Who, we talked a lot about Bolt. Remember the character Bolt who sure. started off in the devil? He became kind of a generic character. Like whenever you needed a mercenary in a comic, it's like, ah, just throw Bolt in there. It doesn't matter. And so he used Bolt. Well, later on it became, ah, just throw a deadline in there. We used to just use deadline. And yes, he premiered in the Starman comic book, the Will Payton, the beloved Will Payton Starman comic. I'm so excited. And he, he is a mercenary. That's his, that's your shtick, you know? Basically, you hire him and he comes in, and comes to go kill someone or whatever. And at this point, he was still very new. I mean, he had only premiered about a year before this. So he had, I think he had two outings where he fought Starman at this point. And he's just – he makes a good generic bad guy. And Tom Lyle, Tom 
effing Lyle. Talk about an underrated artist. Oh my gosh. I love his art. Like, all right, artist man. What do you, and, and I think Cooper school graduate, maybe, if I remember right? I don't know. Mm, I'm, I'm not familiar with that. Okay, maybe not. I know he's teaching at Savannah um, SCAD, Savannah College of Art and Design right now. He teaches there now. But anyway, you, what do you think of the, I mean, I know you don't like the design, but artistically, what do you think? Um, I think it's okay. Just, okay. It doesn't, I mean, it's fine. It's, there's nothing bad about it, but it doesn't particularly thrill me either. Okay. Well, we got to get at least one more Tom Lyle entry in here. Maybe I'll get more idea on that one. So, um, but I, again, I do. I will mention one little detail that I like is that they mention that he has his favorite weapon, which is this customized rifle, mm-hmm. and he keeps it magnetized to his back, which mm-hmm. I think is a great little detail uh, and just kind of nice, like making it easier for your artist not having to draw the strap. Like, he just clicks it right on his back. Like, that would have been a great action figure detail if they had made a superpowers of this figure. That His superpower would have been a magnetized back. And you could just, like, the little gun just goes click and just screw it up on his back. That's, that's, a, that's a nice, handy little detail. That's freaking cool. That's a great idea. And in the minute, in the minute you said magnetized, my mind went to toy, too, <laughs> actually. Yeah, so, um, I think you already said Roger Stern and Tom Law, but there is yep. a created yep. by credit, which is great. So for more information on Deadline, please check out the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour by our buddy um, uh, Aaron Head Moss, where he's covering Starman. Or you can check out Tim Price. Tim Price has a new blog called Blowing Deadlines. Um, kind of an unfortunate name, but, you know, whatever. So, <laughs> so Starman was on issue number 26, by the way, at this point. All right, we have more Starman to come, of course. Uh, next up is Despero, one of the big heavy hitters of the DCU, at least for, in his current incarnation, drawn in this case by Adam Hughes and Joe Rubenstein, a fantastic piece of him leaning over a planet, just sort of raging into the heavens with his ripped-up cape. He first appeared, of course, in Justice League of America, number one, back when his fin went the other direction. Uh, <laughs> he first appeared October, November 1960. He doesn't mention here, but he, of course, is the creation of Gardner Fox and Mike Sikowski. Um, I love on the uh, insets, we see kind of the three versions of Despero. The one mm-hmm. is him as he first appeared kind of in the – not as he first appeared because we see Black Canary there. But, I mean, it's him fighting the JLA in his original form. Then we, when we see him in the middle panel when he came back as kind of the more badass version where the fin was painted the other way and he's torturing Batman on the – on the, he's got a Batman like on the rack. And then That's the, Justice League Detroit era right Justice, there. Justice League Detroit era. And then third is him uh, squeezing the life out of Blue Beetle. And I love uh, – the, 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 the mood I get from that third one is that like Despero's breath is really hot. Like it's having like a blow dryer <laughs> on you because it just feels like really uncomfortable. Uh, I just looks – it looks really cool. I mean Adam, the, the issues of Justice League International or Justice League, what the hell is the book called at that It's point? Just League America. Though. Justice League America. But the ones with that, Despero, are great. They mm-hmm. are fantastic. And so this is – I you know, look, I'm an old fart. We know that. I love old mm-hmm. versions of things. But I will say I feel like this, this attempt – to kind of toughen up Despero and make him more sort of palatable for a modern era, I think worked perfectly because it didn't chuck what they had done previously. He just moved it forward, and it, to me it kept a lot of what made the character still compelling and interesting and f- sort of fun to look at, but, but also made him a little less silly-looking uh, and more in line with the era. So I think this is this is great piece. Yeah, it was a great reimagining. And honestly, it's all down to J.M.D. Mateus because he took Despero in uh, those issues of – and you correct me if I'm wrong. I thought – oh, no, wait. That was Jerry Conway, was wasn't Jerry it? Jerry Conway, yeah, Jerry Conway. 
J.M.D. Mateus took over a couple issues later. Yes. Oh, that's right. Okay. Well, the gist of it is it wasn't just a, hey, this is how he looks now. They actually put Despero on a quest right. to get right. to get this uh, flame of Pitar, uh, which is what ended up transforming him into this new – well, the first step of the new form, which is, again, where you basically you make him taller, stronger, and you flip the fin. And then the Justice League International version was like the bulked up, almost gorilla-like version I and mean, he's just so enormous and it was just an amazing transformation yeah it made him a character that we actually cared about and you already mentioned how great the jli story was which is great uh, i don't really have anything more to add you really hit all the high points so i can't wait to get to it when i get to uh, those issues with jli interestingly enough jmd mateus and in some of the interviews has talked about how when they did the despero story he didn't really see it as being this big amazing story he was sort of sending up these giant you know superhero pitch battles he, he didn't think he didn't realize it was going to be treated that way. Everyone, he thought that they were making fun of big superhero battles. Instead, all the fans reacted being like, this is amazing. So um, That worked on I, me. It worked on all of us. I don't know anyone that wasn't moved by I me. Mean, because Despero, I mean, what Despero was doing at one point, guys, he was his, his cape, he ripped the UN flag off and wore the UN flag as his cape, which just looks so awesome. Looked really cool. So anyway, uh, Justice League International, or Justice League America at this point was on issue number 42. They had just finished the Despero story. Uh, in fact, I think they were on the Requiem you know, epilogue, so this is actually perfect timing for this entry. And for more on Despero, you should definitely check out the Idlehead of Diablo blog and podcast. Frank has sort of made it his mission to make Despero as popular as Martian Manhunter if he can. Really, that's not saying a lot. But either way, uh, he's made it a real mission to focus on that. Um, of course, we will be touching on it with the Justice League International podcast. Uh, it'll be a while, but we'll get there. And then our buddy Jimmy McGlinchey has started his own podcast uh, about Despero. And remember Desperately Seeking Susan? Well, he started a podcast called Despero Seeking Susan Dibney. Jimmy goes a long way for a joke. He always has. So, yeah, be sure to check that out. Despero Seeking Susan Dibney. I will listen to that show. Uh, <laughs> I do. I do want to last thing. I do want to mention it. I love it. Says occupation conqueror. <laughs> yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that fits him to a T. At least from the flame of Pitar days forward. I wonder what your IRS tax code is on that when you pull it and put it on your ten forty. Like, <laughs> it's six six six. Anyway, great listing. One of my one of my favorite things. I'd love to see what Despero's parents looked like. It says unnamed parents. Boy, what did those two look like? Oh boy. Probably like a goofy first drawing. Yeah, maybe. So. Okay, yeah, it's a fin. <laughs> okay, great. So uh, <laughs> next up is Doctor Polaris, drawn by Ooh. Gil Kane. Fantastic. Uh, first appeared in Green Lantern number twenty one, wave from nineteen sixty two. Uh, his alter ego was Dr. Neil Emerson, and th- that st- stood out to me because I think he's one of the few superhero villains whose name is not, like, a, a play on his superhero powers. Like, his name isn't <laughs> Paul Laris, you know? <laughs> like, right, that's right, a regular right. name. Um, we see him in his uh, nice little portrait. He looks like a kind of John Hamish from Mad Men there. And then in the middle, we see him in his original suit, which is goofy beyond words. He's got a magnet pointing towards his dick. Uh, and he's fighting oh the Lantern. And then later on, we see him in his later costume. And it, as goofy as his later costume is with the with the prongs and stuff, I don't know. To me, it just looks kind of cool. Uh, we see him yanking uh, cops' guns out of their hands using his magnetism powers. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I, always, I like this character. I mean, I'd love to see him face off against Magneto. I assume Magneto is a lot more sure. powerful. But uh, I, I don't they... know. I dig this guy. I think they did some of that in the uh, Marvel versus DC trading card oh, set, at least. They? Oh, okay. I think so. Um, I, you mentioned Gil Kane, right? I, yes, I, yes. I wasn't listening to you. Um, I will say that the, the, the only thing I don't like, I, I do, I love the Gil Kane drawing. The line work is great on Polaris, which is fantastic. The coloring is a real letdown though. 
I mean, the colors are very flat. There's no gradients going on. There's gradients on a lot of the other characters, but not on this one. The colors are very well, flat. The background and it really... has a gradient, and the, the, the powers have gradients. Okay, well, I'm looking at him, though. Right, his him, costume. It's very dark. Yeah. It's very, very dark. Yeah, the, 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 the coloring on the costume doesn't do it any favors, which is kind of disappointing because it's a great-looking drawing. It's really, really well done. He's a neat character because um, lo- he's got this Jekyll and Hyde thing going on. You know, Dr. Neil Emerson is like a nice guy. And he sort of becomes Dr. Polaris. And they play with that a lot. And I really think there was a missed opportunity where he could have been a really cool supporting character, like like a Kirk Connors kind of thing, you know? He could have been there for a superhero, been their friend as Neil, and then there's times where he slips into the Dr. Polaris thing and the bat, you know, and the heroes have to go stop him. So he could have been a great supporting character. Um, at this point, he had recently appeared in Starman. Now, going – and we all know he was in Crisis. He played a big role in Crisis. And uh, later on, though, they actually make Neil Emerson the uncle of the character named Damage. So he's actually related to Damage at one point. Uh, he didn't really end up being an ongoing character, though. I mean he was a bad guy he would face. But I don't remember Neil being a supporting character. But that was kind of interesting they connect him to a hero. You know? This, you know, li- uh, this listing does give an indication of kind of uh, – we talked about the first episode and the beginning of this episode is that like – this series really did focus on current continuity because if you read this listing, considering how much room Starman gets versus Green mm-hmm. Lantern, you would think Starman is like just as much as foe as Green Lantern. You would never know he's been a Green Lantern villain for three decades and he right. just started fighting Starman because Starman gets almost as much space as Green Lantern does. That's true. That's all thanks down to Peter Sanderson. Thank you, Peter. And uh, for more on Dr. Polaris, you should check out the Lantern cast, where they focus on Green Lantern, and of course, Green Lantern foes. And our buddy Martin Gray has started up a new podcast called Animal Magnetism, so be sure to check that out. <laughs> By the way, it says, Base of Operations, formerly Central City, later Los Angeles, now New Mexico. Like, how many more does a villain get, or a hero get? Like, how many, you know, he's like... The Joker, current as well. He had this abandoned uh, warehouse park, and then this warehouse, and then this. Like, we don't have to give a change of address every time, do we? Jeez. Well, I think that's all following wherever the heroes were. Central City, okay, he fought the Flash, got it. Los Angeles, okay, he fought Hal Jordan, got yeah. it. <laughs> New Mexico, okay, he fought yeah, Starman. Starman. Yeah, yeah exactly. Just go, like, just the group affiliation around. cracks me up. Yeah. Former leader of his own team of metahuman criminals. They don't get a name? They weren't <laughs> called something? Wow, okay. <laughs> Uh, the the polarisites or something. There we go. Uh, oh. so next up is Flamebird from. Can Super- I say it? Yes, go ahead. She's hot. Yes, she's beautiful. It's a drawing by Kevin McGuire and Carl <laughs> Kiesel. Uh, text is by Barbara Kiesel and George Perez. That's kind of interesting. Uh, a really great drawing of her on her line and the. Ca- I love the, the 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 scalloped cape. It's not even scalped. It's like a torn off cape. It looks looks like flame. Looks. Just fantastic. Uh, I was about to say, first appearance, Secret Origins Annual Number 3, making her one of the more recent characters to appear here. Um, one of the details I like... Wait, pe- before, be- yeah. before you move on from that, I, I, I want to talk about that. I have a problem with that. That is not her first appearance, by any stretch. This character goes back to the 1960s. Well, that other version of Flamebird, not this right, version, Right, but no. all the other characters in here say, first appear- original first appearance, current continuity. Why doesn't she get it? Well, because that's not that that because that's another version of the character. But so is Superman. Mm, Action Comics. Eh, not really. The Golden Age Superman and the John no, Byrne Superman are two complete, different characters. This is a complete yeah, but but they're meant to be the same person. This is that Flamebird is not the same Flamebird as this, this Flamebird. But this no no I'm not talking about Flamebird. I'm talking about Betty Kane. She was the original Batgirl. She was Bat hyphen girl. Okay, fact, all right, her, I see. Oh, I see what you're saying. Okay. Yeah, her right. origin is still the same. All they did was change the name from Batgirl to Flamebird. Her origin hasn't changed. It's okay. just all they did was change her name. 
So Flamebird was introduced in Secret Order, sure. But all the, again, all they did was change the costume. And they changed or tweaked some details here or there. But for the most part, it really remains the same as it was with Batgirl. Hmm. Bat, bat hyphen girl. Bat hyphen girl, right, yes. Mm-hmm. That's true. So, yeah, they, t- they talk about her tennis career. We see her playing tennis or her crush on Robin. Uh, I love that instead of her pinching Robin's cheeks. <laughs> McGuire can fit in so much in such a tiny space. And then we see her with Titans West, which is a group that the members of Titans West always kind of want to get together. And nobody else really wants them to get together. Everybody's kind of like, <laughs> yeah, all right, whatever. Well, you know, the, the, her history here is she, now I, when I said she's hot, I know it's, uh, you know, inappropriate nowadays, but whatever. Um, it even says right in here, even for the beauty saturated environment of Southern California, Betty Kane was exceptionally attractive. OK, so in my defense and she's got, you know, she looks like she's on fire. So whatever. But the deal was she was smoking hot. She won all these pageants. She was a sports queen. She, she had the world in her hand and she was looking for the next big objective and so she decided she was going to conquer the superhero world and by doing so she wanted robin to she wanted robin was her crush she wanted robin to notice her so she, her costume if you look at the colors and the pattern and everything the flame bird costume is actually designed to look a lot like a companion piece to robin she would look great next to robin either you know swinging from a line or you know doing their crush pictures together whatever so she went after robin as flame bird hoping to get his attention and she never did it never worked. He, did, he wasn't interested in her. Hard I don't to know, believe a group with Golden Eagle didn't get a lot of attention. I'm just saying, you know, even when Dick Grayson met her, he didn't go gaga over him. I, the short shorts, he, you know, I wonder about him. Anyway, um, that's why she got Barbara Gordon to romance. What are you talking that's about? That's true. That well, this well in in the original, you know, this is before Barbara Gordon was introduced. Well, but that's anyway, true. so she's. She's pinching uh, Dick's face and all that, and, and like because that's all the the flirting going on. Uh, and once that didn't work out, she just she kind of quit for a while, and she kept going back to Titans West things. Those, um, what else? Uh, the previous entry was done, drawn in Secret Origins of Who's Who, and it was drawn by Perez. So she's got a great, at least as Flamebird, she's got a great track record going here. Now I assume, if you want to explain for the audience why she's called Flamebird. Well, because it's the, the well, the connection to well, what I was talking about the two previous characters from the Bottle City of Candor, Nightwing and Flamebird, which were Superman and Jimmy Olsen's alternate superhero identities in one of the more goofy parts of the Superman pre-crisis mythos. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So they, when they had to get rid of the bat hyphen girl identity, they, they, they went for that route and changed it to Flamebird, which is actually really clever. I thought it was a great idea to use that Candor names because they weren't being used at that point anyway. So. In post-crisis, that is. So, all right. Um, now, she hasn't been seen in a year, not since the Secret Origins annual. So I'm not sure why she's placed here other than they maybe they were thinking about doing another Titans West comeback. I don't know. So, But it had been a whole year since she'd been seen in the comics. And even then, it had been a long time since before that. So for more on Flamebird, uh, again, check out the Tighten Up the Defense podcast. Or our friend Stella has the podcast From Batgirl to Flamebird, a Betty Kane podcast. You can check that out as well. <laughs> I enjoy that show. Uh, okay, next up is The Flash, or here, as it just says, Flash. To me, it's The Flash, but okay. Uh, drawn by uh, uh, Greg LaRocque and Jose Marzan Jr. Text by Mark Wade. back to the Mark Wade love. Uh, of course, his first appearance was as Kid Flash in Flash number 110, first series, December 1959. And then his first appearance as Flash was in Crisis on Infinite Earths number 12 in that little panel where he's like, I am Flash now. Uh, he's six <laughs> feet, 175 pounds. The marquee character of the book, as I said, on the inset, we see him with all the supporting characters, and then we see him with the uh, Bar- we see him with well, we see him as Kid Flash, and then Barry Allen as Flash, and Jake Garrick as the Golden Age Flash. Um, my one quibble with this listing is the drawing is it's great. I mean, the anatomy, everything else, Craig LaRoque, great artist, but he ain't running. He's flying. What? 
He's flying. Oh, he's running. He's flying. Look he at is, that. No, you're just catching. It's, it's a like 800 speed film, and he's got his leg lifted. He is running. Now his arms are back. I'll give you that. But he's clearly running. You see the smoke on the ground. He's just an inch or two above the ground. No, you're just being silly. He this image up. is totally boss. In fact, Greg LaRock is not even this good. I'm sorry, folks. Uh, Greg, Greg LaRock, I love him as an artist. Sorry for those of you on Legion who just got upset. I loved him on Flash, but his art was always just okay. Like, if you look at the backside, especially, like, the, the little inset pictures, you know, like the like his class photo, it's okay. It's not great. You see what I'm talking about? The, the cover like it. though, it's fine. It's, it's perfectly serviceable, but it's not amazing. The image of Flash running, though, the cover image is amazing. It just He's exploding at you. He's going so fast. It looks great. I love it. They've got the lightning in the background, which, you know, of course, is associated with the Flash. Wow. I love this image. Love, love, love it. All right. Now, at this point, Wally's, as I mentioned, his series wasn't selling that well. And Wally was kind of a lost spirit. They really didn't know what to do with the character. When they first launched the Flash book, he was doing heroic deeds for financial gain. Uh, by this point, he'd become known as a womanizer. Part of that was coming from the Flash comics. Part of that was coming from Justice League Europe, where he was a complete lech to Power Girl every issue. Um, they even introduced, they introduced this kind of corny thing about where supposedly, because he kept losing his powers, right? And a psychologist convinced him that he had a mental imprint that Barry had mentally imprinted on Wally that if he ever used his powers irresponsibly, they would go away. I mean, they, they were really trying here, but it really was going to take Mark Wade to make this thing work. So they, they really were not hitting all thrusters again, two months away from the flash TV show starting bill. Mr. Lopes was writing it at this point. I don't know if you've seen, there's a news articles going on around right now. About I have, Mestre. I was glad you were about to, I was hoping yeah. you were going to mention that, yes. Very sad situation, he's really having a hard time, he's, he's lost an arm, uh, him and his wife have been, lost two houses now, uh, for various reasons, there's a lot of articles, you should go out there and read them. Um, just kind of puts your life in perspective, puts his life in perspective, I haven't seen any, like, um, GoFundMes or anything for him yet, I imagine somebody will start one up fairly soon, but uh, just, you know, be thinking about what's going on with this man who brought us a lot of joy over the years with some great comic books. And I, I, I sound like I was bagging on him just then. I wasn't. I, I'm sorry if it appeared that way. I did love these issues of Flash. He wrote some amazing issues of Flash. Anyway, um, so just keep him in your thoughts, folks. He also wrote a great comic named Journey, by the way, an independent comic, which uh, I read as a kid. And it was one of those first comics that, like, I didn't understand it much at all because it was just to me above me. But I really liked it. And he drew it. And he's really a yeah, great writer and artist. And absolutely, yeah. Uh, check out the there, – there must be uh, some sort of GoFundMe page starting soon, as you just said. So uh, keep, keep, keep him in your thoughts, everybody, because uh, this is the uh, – being creative in this world, not easy. <laughs> not easy. Right. So, and he did a lot of great work. So anyway, um, but yes, the the flash listing. I don't mean to be too harsh on it. I I know it's probably hard uh, that these listings are by their nature vertical, and that's hard to have somebody running when you're doing a vertical. You know, when the, that's the that's the that's the angle that you've got to work with. When we see down at the bottom, you know, you're doing a more horizontal panel. We can get more of the three people running and stuff. So I don't mean to be too harsh on this listing. It certainly is. The the colors look great and the logo is cool. And we see the lightning, as you just said. So yeah, it's pretty good. I guess if he'd had one arm cocked, like you know, like you do when you're running, maybe it would have been a little better. But yeah. I, everyone write in the everyone write in the comments and tell Rob that he's freaking crazy. This looks great. So okay. well, uh, Flash was on. Paste that from other comments, people. 
that's true. I'll, I'll even start it for you folks. Um, Flash was on issue 42 at this point, heading screaming towards issue number 50, which was a great buildup to a uh, Vandal Savage storyline. And when Bear, or where Wally finally stepped out of the shadows of Barry and got his own costume. You know, which was slight alteration. They made it real red. It was real shiny. Uh, the white eye, eye inset. So you, that was Wally's look for the 90s. So coming up real soon here. For more on Flash, there's a lot of places you can look nowadays, primarily driven by the TV show. For example, the Flash podcast, our buddy Andy runs that. It's mainly focused on the TV show, but they talk about the comics sometimes. Um, there's, of course, the speedforce.org website, hosted by our buddy Kelson. It's a fantastic resource. Then there... All right, folks, I, I, forgive me at home. This Maybe this is my ignorance, but... I don't know of an active podcast that is completely dedicated to the comics, um, covering Flash comics, specifically the Wally era. I, I don't know of one. If you know one, please put it in the comments. I am aware our buddy Chris Ivey has covered some on his podcast. Uh, I am aware that Dave Walker and Dave Weeder both started podcasts covering Flash comics. I don't think any of those are still covering them at this point and, and not as a dedicated show. So definitely, you know, seek those out. Let me know because I'd love to hear a podcast about Wally. I just love Wally. And if you want, this is. You know, well, JLU cast. I was going to pimp JLU cast. Wally does end up in the JLU as a main character. A little different than the comics, but, you know, I want to give Chris and Cindy Franklin a plug. So check out the JLU cast as well. Next up is Hawk World, which is our first geography listing here in the book. Uh, it's drawn by Graham Nolan and Gary Quaspiz, I believe that's how you say it. Text by Peter Sanderson, uh, the historical version, which is a good way of using a good way of, of, of determining or, mm -hmm. or mentioning like the pre-crisis for historical. It's a good good term of phrase. Brave and the Bold, number thirty-four, March nineteen sixty-one. The modern version for Superintendent Hawk World, book one. Now, okay, this don't don't, don't do this. This is my thing. Ugh, uh, this this, go, is, this is my thing. This is my thing. This here comes the get off my lawn speech. I have not. Well, no, I don't think so. I I think I don't remember much about Hawkworld uh, as a concept. My problem with Hawkworld is that it was it it is the to me it is the number one casualty I think of, underlining the lack of coherence in the DC universe post crisis, because all of a sudden they just decided oh Hawkman's history is all different, and I was like wait. Is this how does this line up with all the other? And it was that lack of like across the board control that really helped me lose interest in the DCU post crisis because it was so inconsistent. It was like, wait, Batman's kind of the same, Green Lantern's kind of the same, Superman started over, Wonder Woman started over, Hawkman started like it just threw me for a loop. So, and I always really liked the original Hawkman and Hawkgirl. I oh, I never knew why that comic was so kind of tough to do. Seems soup, you know, super cool couple with their old villa, their old uh, weapons, space cops. They have an outer, they have a cool spaceship. I, I don't. It's like I don't know. I don't have a problem with Hawkworld. I just don't think it was necessary. Okay, um, I'm gonna share a different view, obviously. Um, so here's the deal: Hawkworld. Everyone, everyone bags on Hawkworld. I disagree. I think it was a very good series. I think it was it was a product of its time. It's a very they basically and we'll talk more about it. We haven't talked anything about the history of it at this point, but it was a very dystopian look right. at the planet Thanagar is what it was. And everyone and I know everyone at home is already typing their comment actually. Everyone's already typing if they had just said Ten years ago, because what happened was Mark Wade once said, you know, Hawkworld, all the continuity snafus would have been worked out if they just started by saying ten years ago. I think that's an oversimplification, and I think people have kind of hung that out there too often. I think that's wrong, because Wonder Woman started over, and she was starting over in modern day. You know, her first appearance in post-crisis was in Legends. Right. So 
there, there they was an example of a character that they completely rebooted and started from day one, rather than where Superman was a, you know, 10 years ago thing. Um, when they did Man of Steel. But anyway, Wonder Woman started over in the middle of Legends, and that was the new Wonder Woman. And everyone got on board. No one sat there. Well, I guess some people did. But not many people sat there and stomped their feet and said, well, now she's not part of the Justice League and this doesn't work anymore, and like held their ground. Instead, they're like, okay, well, let's try these comics. All right, these are pretty damn good. Instead, with Hawkworld, everyone just sat there and stomped around all pissed off because of the continuity challenges. Yeah, there were definitely continuity challenges. Absolutely. But it was damn good. People should have been able to look past it. I'll tell you, where I really think the things went wrong was when they started the ongoing series. That's where it all went, fell apart. Because one, the ongoing series was a great piece if you wanted to really focus on Thanagar and Bith and all that kind of stuff. It wasn't a great piece of DC Universe. Though. There you go. It, it was, could have been like the Atlantis Chronicles for Hawkman. Right. But it was, well, that's kind of what Hawkworld feels like, uh, the, the, the original miniseries. But the ongoing, they, they got too deep into their own continuity. They didn't spread Katar and Shara out in the rest of the DC universe. They didn't interact with everybody all the time. They were condensed into their own series. And John Ostrander wrote a too finite of a series that was focused on their own stuff. So it was all there. It was not impenetrable or anything, but it was just if you weren't in, you weren't in. Whereas instead, they could have thrown Shayera on, like, I don't know, Justice League Europe or something, because that was a slightly bit more serious at the time. She would have been a great addition there. And if she had got more exposure, I think people would have accepted them because. It, they fit the model you just talked about, Rob. They were space cops, whereas the, I never felt like the pre-crisis she, Carter and Shayara were space cops. They felt like superheroes. They didn't feel like space cops. These guys were cops. They, it was like Hill Street Blues kind of stuff. It was rough. They were front. They were protecting a rough neighborhood. They wore armor. You know, they, they carried guns. They were like actual cops. They followed cop procedures and stuff. It was really interesting. Uh, and so if they had gotten a, a wider breadth, if the story had not been so focused on itself, I really think it would have got a better acceptance. Okay. And this version of Shayera actually is my – okay, thanks for that. Uh, this version of Shayera was my favorite version of Shayera they've ever done. She was a total – Badass in this Hawkworld series, even better than the one in Justice League Unlimited. Sorry, folks. Uh, oh I just, my like, God! Let the hate mail. I honestly, I think the Justice League Unlimited version owes a lot to this version of Shayera. Cindy actually. is gonna punch you next time she sees you. I'm telling you, they owe a lot to this version of Shayera. Oh, I, I don't doubt about that. I'm just yeah. So, and they got really bogged down with Bith. Oh my gosh! Like if you read the original introduction of Kadar and Shara by you know Joe Kubert. They got Bith taken care of in one story, folks. It's that's, a good damn story, too. Yeah, that's another thing that modern comics do is like they when they reboot the origins of a villain of a, of a hero, they always intertwine one of the villains as as like the you know was there from the beginning, kind of like the Batman movie. The Joker well, killed the Batman's parents. It's always that you know like ah, uh, they're fine the way they. I don't know. <laughs> well, no, Bith, Bith. No, Bith was their origin. Bith is why they came to Earth in the old original Joe Kubert comic. They came to Earth to catch Bith. They just stayed. Whereas in this one, it's right, the same thing. He's a lot more involved, though. Exactly. He, I mean, they they chased him for like a freaking year. Like I right. got so sick of that storyline. Whereas again, Kubert got it done in one issue. So, um, all right. He, so he didn't the, waste a lot of time from my memories of him. <laughs> I bet. Yeah. So Hawkworld, you didn't describe the art, but basically it's, you're, they're showing the spires. You see a, a patrolman flying through the clouds or kind of thing flying over the city. You don't see a lot of the city, but it's a nice sort of, uh, you can see how tall the buildings are because they're, like, they're above the clouds even to some extent. And the gist of it is, you know, there, there's, the, there's the higher part of the city, which is above way up in the high in the skyscrapers where all the rich sort of live, the affluent members of Hawkworld, the Thanagarians. And they were an oppressed people. They were held as 
slaves for a long time. They had a revolt. They took over control of their own planet. And then eventually they became corrupt and they became slavers themselves. And the lower parts of the buildings, uh, sort of like Coruscant in Star Wars, uh, it was called the downside is where all the slaves live. And it's just a horrible area. It's, it's, um, it's where the cops basically have to spend most of their time patrolling. And they say a thousand people die in downside every day. It's horrible. And Katar Hall, his father invented uh, – and again, this is all the new origin. His father invented the flying wings that the uh, new the, – the, the, what they call the wingmen, where the cops are basically the, the hawkmen. That's what they wear. He invented those wings. And I love these post-crisis wings because they're just giant metal sheets. They're not, they're not feathered. They're a big metal sail. And it look, I think it looks cooler. I think it looks makes a lot more sense. So uh, let's see what else. Uh, da, da, da. Yeah, I mean, that's the gist of it. Hawk, Hawk World was only on issue number four at this point. They had done the three-issue miniseries, which, again, is fantastic, guys. I seriously recommend you seek it out. Graham Nolan was drawing the ongoing. They were on issue four at this point, and uh, it's, I, I enjoy it. I, I can't promise the ongoing again because I think they do get too bogged down on their own stuff, but the, the miniseries is great. I think Tim Truman was yes, very involved. Tim Truman, yeah. Yeah, so – um, well, for folks, for more on Hawkworld, Hawkman, and all that, check out the Bean Carter Hall blog by our buddy Luke Jacanetti. Also, I found a new blog uh, called, and this one's for real, uh, from Fly to, it's called Fly to Hawkworld blog, and uh, it's got all kinds of Hawkman stuff out there, which is great. You know, Hawkman's getting a new series coming up, by the way. That's right. Yeah, I saw uh, that, see? Yeah. Yep. And then finally, uh, there's a new, ba- there's a recent back issue uh, article by our buddy Daniel Butnick, and it's called Feathered Hair, Farah to Shiera. So you might want to check that out as well. <laughs> Dan's a great writer. I can't wait to, can't wait to check that out. Yep. Uh, next up is I, Vampire, uh, which is uh, first appeared. Next. Oh, oh my God. I can't believe mm-hmm. you First appeared. I mean, I mean it too. First appeared in House of Mystery number 290, created by J.M. DeMatteis and Tom Sutton. Here, wow, good luck getting him back on the show, Shag. Um, <laughs> I, I was actually, I, I never read this strip too much because House of Mystery just was not a book that I read regularly. But I was curious about it because, first of all, this is one of the few creators that uh, get, they get a credit here in the book. And I always like the title, I Vampire. It's kind of fun. Gives it the whole, uh, recalls sort of uh, the idea of the original Dracula book. In fact, there's a character here named Mary Seward, and that last name is from the original Dracula novel by Brian Stoker. I was so curious about I Vampire, but how it got started, that I actually wrote to JM and asked him about it. Mm. And this is, yes, and it's because I asked him and said, well, like, what was the the genesis of this? Did you come up with the character and you pitch it to DC, or did DC come to you and say, "Hey, we want a, like an ongoing feature for House of Mystery"? And this is what JM said. He says, Len Wein was one of my first editors at DC. He was also my mentor and my friend. This was very early in my career, and working with a legend like Len, having seen him, having him see great potential in my work was inspiring, to say the least. When Len wanted a regular lead feature for both House of Mystery and Weird War Tales and came to me for both. For House of, Mis- House of Mystery, Len tossed me a title he liked, I, Vampire, and asked me to create a feature to go with it. Long story short, I did. He approved it, brought Tom Sutton on for the art, and we were off. Same thing happened with World War T- Weird, Weird War Tales and Creature Commandos. Thank you so much, JMD. I appreciate it. It was great uh, talking to you. Uh, Tom Sutton, one of the great comic book artists, I think, ever really to do it. He's a great horror style. 
very unusual to see his work in Who's Who. Like he was, he's, I think he did a couple of uh, entries in the original series, but he did didn't he do show... Omega Omega Men maybe or something. No, like that? no, no, that's Todd Smith. Uh, you're Tom, oh yeah, Tom, right. Tom, Tom did a lot of horror related stuff. Really very intricate. And you can see here we see I Vampire. Uh, not that's, that's not his name, of course, but we see the the main feature of the logo, and we see him in front of his castle. And it's got his name. It says Ben under the background. We see these ghosts. Uh, figures of uh, various animals, and there we see some bats hanging. So it's a very involved piece, really very beautiful and intricate. And uh, I have never said I've only read a handful of Vi Vampire stories, but I'm kind of curious. I want to dig these up. No pun intended. Oh, <laughs> now I guess I should put some uh, context around my disparaging comments. I have no problem with the character. Uh, his his origin is actually quite interesting. I love the story about how he turned Mary and she ended up becoming a, his his main nemesis and all this stuff. Um, and I'm fine with vampire stuff in 1981. It's great. You know, leading a house of mystery feature makes perfect sense. You know, horror has a cycle. Horror was popular in you know like the 50s. Horror was popular in the 70s. Horror was popular in the 90s. Horror is popular again now. It kind of in every 20 year cycle, horror takes a big popularity in pop culture. Uh, but for me, I grew up too much in the 90s and got really sick of, and I worked in a comic book shop, so that's part of the context. I got really sick of all the Anne Rice fans and all the you know uh, White Wolf vampire fans. It, it was too much. So I, I have an aversion to vampire stuff. I'm just like, Ugh, I'm sick of it. I don't care. So not my favorite thing. Again, nothing really wrong with this character. I just didn't hold my attention. Even though this, the, re- the whole reason this character is in here is because he recently appeared in the Dr. Fate comic at that point. Right, right. So that's why he's in here. And again, I love the Dr. Fate comic. and I love J.M.D. Mateus, so I should ha- have more f- love for this. But it's vampire, so I don't. So um, for more on... Not necessarily I Vampire, but horror-related stuff. You should check out the Midnight, the podcasting hour uh, podcast by our buddy Ryan Daly. And then our buddy Jeff Tischer, has, uh, he's actually put together a new supernatural romance podcast. It's called Love at First Bite. So check that out. Great movie. Uh, next up is Katana, everybody's favorite outsider, created by Mike W. Barr. Actually, <laughs> that, that's that sense has never been uttered. Yeah, that's that's <laughs> that's Looker actually, created by Mike W. Barr and Jim Aparo. She first appeared in, of course, Brave and the Bold number two hundred, which along with the rest of the outsiders. The art is by Craig Brasfield and Carl Kiesel, who did the Geoforce listing in the first issue, which we had um, some fun with. Uh, <laughs> this, this one is a little more straightforward. He uh, instead of. Uh, Kind of throwing the villains in a kind of goofy manner. We see her just sort of uh, in a in an action pose, and she's got her size with her, or not her size. Those are not sides. She's got her swords with her. Katanas. Her katana, That's her name. Katanas. And she's leaping in the air, and we get the logo, and uh, we see all the stuff in the background, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah, I mean, we all know this this character and the insects. Well, let's, we, let's talk about the art real quick, though. Okay. You know, they've got Japanese iconography behind her and stuff like that. It is a big step up from Geoforce. However. Her face. I mean, what is that? What, what is that? Come on. <laughs> She's getting her um, teeth. In, I guess that's what that's supposed to be. I don't know. It looks like someone trying to draw like a McGuire, Kevin McGuire and failing is what it looks like to me. Ooh, but wow. um, real quick about Braswell, we, we speculated why was he drawing it? I, there's no connection to the outsiders whatsoever with this guy. But Chris Franklin actually proposed uh, in one of the feedback comments uh, that – Suppose he believes there was a outsider's proposal on the table where Braswell would be drawing, or Brasfield, whatever his name is, would be drawing it, and so that's why he was doing these entries. But it ended up getting delayed, and by the time it got published, a couple years later, it was actually Paul Pelletier, uh, Paul Pelletier, our buddy, who was drawing it. 
I, I don't know. I, I like this entry just fine. I think I think Geoforce Woman was goofy. I said on the insets, we see her with her husband. We see her with uh, Black Lightning and Halo in her new hideous costume. I hate that costume so, so very much. They have the costume was... White? Yes. Oh, There's nothing wrong with that costume. Oh, it's hideous. Oh, the, the other, other costume. The other one's much more garish. No. Oh, you're crazy. Uh, and then we see her with Halo goofing around. I like the relationship that they had in The Outsiders. Mm-hmm. I like Batman and The Outsiders, unironically. I know Siskoi loves to make fun of it, and it's kind of become like a punching bag a little. And uh, Michael Wagner keeps threatening to start the podcast, which he never actually does. It's not Michael Wagner. You say this every time. Well, it's, Michael it? Curis- it's Michael Curiscaro. Michael, I apologize. Well, either one of them should do the show. Uh, but I, I really like their relationship in the, in the comic. I thought it was cool. And, of course, she's a movie star. Uh, They've redesigned her a lot. I mean, she's basically not recognizable as the one we see here. But nevertheless, she's a movie star. And I actually like the iteration of her in the movie. That's probably the only part of that movie I liked. Um, I like the look. I like the mask and stuff. So, I mean, I hope uh, Mike W. Bar gets some royalty checks out of it. Oh, he should because he's got a creator credit listed here. Mm -hmm. So. Mm Mm-hmm. Yep. I um, know one of the big things I've always liked about the and I liked the I, I used to make fun of that man outsiders comic, too. But then I read the showcase presents, which covers the first 19 issues. I had a blast with it, man. I loved it. It was so much fun. Really so, fun book. They are fun. Fun is the word for it. It's very bronze agey. So it's it's sort of like you, you have to put on a different hat when you read it. You, you read it and you're not like this would not have happened in post crisis. There's no way it's too goofy, but I don't care. It's fun. I, I enjoy it quite a bit. And uh, one of the things I loved about Katana was her sword. She has a sword called a Soul Taker. Soul Taker, yes. Yeah, and her husband's her husband's brother was jealous, and he murdered the husband, her husband, with the sword. And the sword takes people's souls, and so now she has the sword, and her husband's soul is inside the sword. And she actually talks to the sword. She talks to her husband in the sword. It's kind of a cool gimmick. I like it. It's a neat idea. So, and um, at this point, though, she hasn't been, by the way, hasn't been seen for two years. So, again, this was sort of tied with the, the potential Outsiders relaunch is what they were hoping for. You've already mentioned Michael Kiriskiro's, uh fake Bat- uh, Batman and the Outsiders blog you should check out. Um, I'll, I personally would not recommend you go watch your, uh, the Suicide Squad movie for her. I did not like her portrayal in there. And then also, if you're looking for more on Katana, you should check out. <coughs> you should check. I'm going to get this out. Uh, you should check out David. <laughs> David, David Ace Gutierrez has started a new line of fruit st- <laughs> fruit stands. You can go get fruit from him at the Katana Banana. So please support David in this endeavor. <laughs> There's always money in the Katana Banana. <laughs> next. You, you keep this relationship fresh. Uh, next up is uh, King Faraday, or as he should be called, I Spy. Uh, because uh, basically his little King Faraday name is a little tiny, and then you see I Spy in Giant Logos. And the reason he's called that is because that's where he first appeared. He first appeared in in Danger Trail number one, and then when he was brought into, I think it was a Showcase, they called the book I Spy, and that's kind of what he was known for at that point. And his code name is I Spy, so that's really what he, even though his listing is King Faraday, which is, of course is a play on King for a Day, Queen for a Day kind of thing, King Faraday. Um, what yeah. what year, I wonder, did he get the um, – <clears throat> I'll try to shake off the last. Uh, what year did he get the I Spy name compared to you know the Bill Cosby, uh, uh, Robert Culp show, I wonder? Well, the Showcase comic was before the before that TV series. So okay, DC so they had it first, first yeah, 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 but, yeah. but I'm sure 
DC wasn't going to be able to get that copyright. I'm sure CBS or whoever had it. So yeah, I'm not sure how. Yeah, well, whatever you can even copyright that, or whatever. But yes, yeah, so he was. He first appeared in this Danger Trail book, which only ran for five issues in the mid 1950s. If you ever had a chance to take a look at it, uh, you can go to Mike's Amazing World and look at the covers by Carmen Infantino. They are beautiful. I mean, oh, boy. I mean, I, I'm not. I'm not uh, creating any. Uh, I'm not bringing any ground here saying Carmen Infantino was a great artist, but his mid '50s stuff, like just kind of before he took over Flash, that stuff is gorgeous. Like he did a Phantom Stranger book that is beautiful. It's really great stuff. So these Danger Trail comics have not been reprinted anywhere. There was a Danger Trail miniseries in the '90s, yeah, like the '80s or something. '90s, in the yeah. '90s, yeah. It's edited by Paul Kupperberg and written by Len Wein and drawn by Carmen Infantino. And that's why, and uh, I think it was covered by Paul Galassi. So they did bring him back, and he became a member of the Suicide Squad and all this stuff. But I mean, man, those Danger Trail comics—just, just look at the covers. Absolutely gorgeous. So this is why I've always kind of had an affection for this character, even though I've never really read any of the stories. I just every time I think of those Danger Trail comics, I'm like, man, I gotta like. I mean, you can't get them. You gotta just buy them on eBay, which probably cost a mint. Uh, but man, they look so cool. So I'm, I'm kind of excited about every time I look at this character. Oh, I should mention the art here is by Dean Motter, uh, who was somebody who didn't do a lot of DC stuff at least at the time. He came from the world of independent comics, and I dig it. We see him over the uh, this. Uh, we don't know if the guy, the the guard, he's laying over is dead. I'm guessing he's got a gun. He's brandishing a gun, so I guess he shot this guy. He's a bad guy, but uh, I mean, he's like a super spy character. Uh, I, it's it's cool stuff. It looks neat. Yeah, he's like at this point in 1990, he's like an elderly James Bond. It's mm-hmm. kind of what he is. Yeah, <clears throat> cool stuff. I I I wasn't from too familiar. I didn't done did a lot of research. I didn't know if Danger Trail was even a a, a DC or National Periodical book in yep. 1950 or yep. so. It, clearly, it is. I, you know, thanks for that. Um, and, and I'll back up Carmen Infantino, amazing artist back then. I, if if memory serves, God, I hope I'm not getting this wrong. He drew a, a lot of the Space Museum uh, entries as well. I believe he did. Yeah. Yeah, before his Flash stuff. And, I mean, God, the stuff he cranked out was so awesome and so creative and so interesting looking. Yeah, so I'm totally supporting his what you're saying about him being an amazing artist in the early in the days. I mean, he's still great later, too. But, I mean, definitely you should check out some of the early stuff. And King Veraday has actually had an interesting life. I mean, you know, he's made it into other media. He, he was uh, prominently in the Young Justice cartoon. He was in the New Frontier movie. Uh, oh, that's he's right. Been in, He's been in Justice League Unlimited, so I mean he's had he's had a he's had a healthy life here, so it's good stuff. And at this point, uh, he had been appearing in Suicide Squad, which is probably why he's here. And uh, you, you mentioned the artist, by the way, uh, Dean Motter. The big thing I noticed he was known for in the independent world was Mister X was what he appeared yes. to be doing at that point. So for more on King Faraday, you should check out the Task Force X podcast, again by Aaron Head Moss, because he has a Suicide Squad connection. And our buddy Chuck Coletta has started a new blog called I Spy With My Little Lie Comics. So you should check that as well. <laughs> Next, I can't even. Next up is uh, Laurel Gand from the Legion of Superheroes, Woo! Uh, drawn by Keith Giffen and Al Gordon. And she's wearing a little bottom piece tunic thing that looks really uncomfortable. Unfortunately, the backside's even worse. It's a thong. That looks just, that's just bunching big time. Uh, (laughs) Please explain to me who this character is exactly. I mean, I read, I read the listing. I know it's Supergirl, but it's It's sort of the, it's the post-crisis Supergirl. Yes. It is the post-crisis Legion of Superheroes Supergirl. Because, you know, we've all, we've talked about crisis. We've talked about how crisis reboots everything. You lose the Kryptonian. Supergirl's gone from continuity. They had a hole Basically, they needed a plug in continuity. So what they did was they said, all right, we're going to plug the Superman holes with Monel, 
and we're gonna and you know Monel his cousin in Superman's cousin was Supergirl, so let's give Monel a cousin. Basically, it's not so much a cousin; it's more like a distant relation. And so they came up with Laurel Gand, which is also a nod to Laurel Kent, if you remember her as well from the Legion era. So they came up with Laurel. Gand. So she is the cousin, sort of related, distant relation of Monel, and she functioned as the new post-crisis version of Supergirl. She even has, uh, you know, a, a domed city she lives on, which is sort of like Argo City. They changed some of the some of the origin there, but the gist of it is, you know, she she fits that mold. She had the relationship with uh, Brainiac Five. She had all those adventures. She had a costume for a long time, which was like a feminine version of Monel's costume, that sort of thing. So, but when we meet her. We meet her during the five-year-later era. That's the first time we ever met her. So what's happened is not only has she gone through all the eras of being the version of Supergirl, I guess you could say, she's also gone through the dystopian future where all the United, Feder- uh, United Planets fell apart for five years, and now she's been fighting a war for five years versus the Cahoons. So she's wearing now more just like a kind of a, a, a jacket, and she's got the big red cape, which looks a little more ornamental than Supergirl's. And unfortunately, yes, as you said, she's basically wearing really tacky 90s lingerie bikini bottoms, which – and from the back, they would always show her in the thong, which I never cared for. I like her in, in the inset picture on the back. Uh, she's in the female version of the Monel costume. She's got like Monel's top at the pleated skirt. I love that version. I thought she looked great. And Oh, they also gave her a headband, you know, kind of a nod to the Supergirl headband and stuff. She goes on after this to get the name Andromeda. She, that, so a lot of Legion stuff subsequent to this, you'll see a character named Andromeda. This is the same character, still Laurel Game. In fact, I think um, because she's so new, like at this point, she's only been publishing for five months. That's it. I think this is the first time we ever saw her origin. Uh, Dr. Ange would probably be the one to confirm that or not, but I think this is the first time they ever revealed any of her origin, which is unusual for Who's Who, because usually that stuff comes other time. You know, comes, you know, in the comics and they put it in Who's Who. But this entry is written by Tom and Mary Beerbaum, who was writing the comic at the time. Then the other thing, oh, there's, there is a character in here called Eltro Gand, who's like a, an uncle or something of hers. He basically fills the Superman role where he's doing the whole super dickery where he takes her like, you're a hero. Now go hide in an orphanage, you know, on Earth for a long time, just like Superman did to her. So that kind of fits too. So that, that's the gist of her. Does that sort of answer your questions? I guess so. It mentioned she's seven feet tall. Yes, she's very tall. Woof. <laughs> that, that, that they do show in the comics, yes. Okay, all right, wow, okay. I do like the final paragraph where it says, Despite the scars of her childhood, she holds a strong faith in the basic good of sentient life and believes that, if nurtured properly, the universe can blossom into a glorious manifestation of that good. That certainly seems like a holdover from the Supergirl iteration of the character. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I, uh, I, she was a great... You know, continuity fix for Supergirl. She was a great addition in subsequent versions of the Legion where they had her as Andromeda. She's great. I Personally, I think, well, I'm going to get on my soapbox for a second just say I, instead they should have just plugged all the holes with Power Girl, whatever. No one thought of it back then, so instead they did this, which is, she is fantastic. And I think Ange would back me up. She's, she's great. She's a great character. Now, one thing to point out here, Rob, because this is going to tie into something you think is very funny. If you notice the border on the back, it says hero, but it's blue. It has the col- it has the color of supporting character, but it says hero instead of being red. Oh. That is a mistake. Oh boy! And people will lose their mind in yep. the letters. Oh yeah, one of the funniest and, letters ever. I'd say the funniest well, letter ever to be printed in a comic book. Well, because of that letter or, or subsequent letters, in issue sixteen of this Who's Who iteration, they produce another Laurel Gand entry, which is identical except has the red hero border. Wow. I kid you not. They reprinted it. 
they did. I have both of them, so that's why I know. I mean, the coloring on the cover, like the, the entry itself, the coloring is slightly different, but it's still basically the same. Amazing. So for more on her, though, you should definitely check out the Legion of Superbloggers. Dr. Ange has cataloged the entire 5YL run there, and then the subsequent errors where Andromeda's there, she'll, she'll spring up on those. Dr. Ange also has his Supergirl blog, Comic Box Commentary, where he does talk about her some. And then our buddy Jeff R., who does the egregious submissions of the month normally, uh, he started a new Pinterest, actually, focused on Power Girl and Laurel Gand and Matrix and CRL and stuff like that, those types of characters. Uh, they're all basically Supergirl analogs. And uh, he started a new Pinterest. It's entitled Hot Broths, the new – I'm sorry. <clears throat> Hot Broths, the not-so-Supergirls. Get it? Broth, soup. It's funny. Well done, Jeff. Wow. Okay. I thought you were going to mention that you can find this character on, on, on Twitter under Laurel Gan Mountainflower. <laughs> could be, could be. That's true. <laughs> uh, next up is uh, Mira, but the character for some reason has been named Maxima. I don't really understand what's going on here. Uh, no, of course, making a little funny there. Uh, this is uh, Maxima, is drawn by Kurt Swan and Brett Breeding. Nice combination. Who first appeared in Action Comics number six forty five? She is a six foot two redhead. Yes, please. Uh, we see her uh, looking a lot like Mira on the front there because uh, she's drawn by Kurt Swan, who was, of course, drawing Aquaman uh, very recently, at least at this point. And she seems to be underwater, at least that's sort of the image you kind of get. And then on the back, but on the insets, we see her punching the crap out of Superman using her mind powers and stuff. Now, she later on joined the Justice League, right? Am I wrong yes, about she that? she did. Okay. She joined Justice League America and then later Extreme Justice. Okay. Oh, my so God. This, at this point, she's a villain, but right. that will change. Right, okay. Uh, yeah, it's his known relative's uh, as yet unrevealed occupation, Empress. And we see one of her handmaidens uh, tending to her on the other ends of putting on a little nightgown. Because they, they set her up as kind of like, uh, well, I don't, I don't want to go too far. Not like the Catwoman, but like she had the hots for Superman. Even though she was a bad girl, she wanted to get with Superman in the worst way. Right, for a specific reason. It wasn't that she was Randy. She wanted to breed. Right. Her thing was yeah. she wanted to breed with the correct breeding stock. And Superman, as far as she was concerned, was sort of it was was good enough. And she wanted to breed the next you know ruler of Almorak, her planet. And so she came after Superman, and she was not letting up. <laughs> Did you read uh, those Superman comics with her in it? I don't really remember much from her. Of much, much I stories with her. I came a little later, um, not much. Uh, not, only a few months after this is when I started reading Superman, actually. Um, and so I, I didn't read these previous ones. I've, I've gone back and read them, but I didn't at the time. Now, I, I do want to talk about the image real quick, though. The image is fantastic. This is what could have happened with Ocean Master last month, folks. We talked about Kurt Swan and Joe Rubenstein weren't the greatest combination on Ocean Master. Kurt Swan and Brett Breeding is awesome. This is a great image. She doesn't look threatening. She doesn't look evil, but she's beautiful. The anatomy looks great. It, you know, I mean, it's a little 90s elongated and not much clothes, but I mean, it's still, it, it looks, it's a great drawing. I love the cover entry. So Brett Breeding probably is carrying a lot of the weight here, or maybe. Great anchor, Brett Breeding. Just yeah. superb. So really, really a nice image. Uh, I like the turn where she eventually became a hero, you know, during, I guess it was Panic in the Sky, I think is where she started acting as a hero, if I remember right. Either way, uh, she had just just been seen 
uh, four months ago in Action Comics. And at this point, Action Comics was on issue 650, 656, which was the, uh, the, for those of you who may remember the Blaze storyline, where Superman's fighting Blaze. But uh, neat character. I, I like her. And the whole shtick where she was trying to breed kept going. Like, even when she was a hero, she was always looking for a breeding partner. Um, you know, she, she, There were several people she courted at different points where she decided, okay, he's good enough. So, Anyway, for more on this character, you should definitely check out From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast which focuses on Superman during the post-crisis era. Lots of content on Maximum. Or our buddy DC Dave, or OC Dave, OCD Day, whichever you want to call him. He has started a new live journal called Maxima Carnage. You can check that out as well. <laughs> uh, next is uh, one of your favorites, of course. Mm-hmm. Maxwell Lord first appeared in Justice League number one. Uh, the art is by Ty Templeton. This is a beautiful. Hell yes, yes. it is. Beautiful, beautiful. Interesting, no creator credit for Maxwell Lord. That's kind of unusual because uh, he's such a recent creation. Uh, but be- a beautiful listing of Max in his office, and he's got all his uh, bric-a-brac around him. We see that he's got he's got a nice uh, window view of the city. Uh, he's got his little uh, ping pong, not a ping pong paddle, that rubber ball. I forget what pa- those paddle. things are called. Paddle ball. Yeah, right. Uh, he's got his a bunch of stuff, and he's making a business deal. The one little detail that was interesting is that we see a painting on the left-hand side. It's cut off by the image, and presumably that's Maxfield Parish by the going by the name because we hear L-ish. Oh, okay. Um, I don't really understand the connection other than the Max Max that he just Max well Lord is interested in a painter whose uh, name is the first name similar to his. Um, I'm seeing Maxwell Lord is more of a Nagel kind of guy, like kind of an 80s type stuff. I was going to say, Na- Nagel was really popular in the 80s. Was Maxwell, is Maxfield Parrish popular at that point? I don't really know. I mean, he's kind of an eternal painter. He's from the he's from the earlier part of the 19th century. He's born in Philadelphia, mm. by the way. Uh, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I don't really, again, it might just be Max Max. Like, that's his ego, is that he wants to have a, some renowned person who has the same first <laughs> name as him. I like the logo, where it looks like a business plate, like you would see yes. on his desk. I think that's a nice detail. And or on, a, on a door. Or really is what it looks like. Right, got the right, right, right. Door. Yeah. Uh, on the inset, we see him discovering the secret sanctuary. We see him talking to Martian Manhunter, who looks dubious. And then him using the after effects of him using his mental powers is where he gets nosebleeds. And we see Guy Gardner in the background looking clueless. Uh, and they mention in the powers and weapons. <laughs> well, wait, you got to mention the whole reason he has a nosebleed is because he's making Guy Gardner take out the trash. Oh, okay, Gardner's all taking, right, okay. Guy Gardner's taking out the trash, and he's clueless why he's taking out the trash. It's because Max has done that to him. And he talks about in The Powers and Weapons that he always has to have a large supply of red handkerchiefs on hand <laughs> to cover up the blood. So, uh, yeah, I mean, you can't beat Ty Templeton, uh, especially him making himself. It's just a beautiful piece. It's, it's, it's an example of how you can make a really captivating entry listing without necessarily having it be an action thing. Because it's just the guy in an office, but it's so beautifully drawn, and it gives you so much insight into the character that it's it's really a nice piece. Probably one of the best in the book. It is one of my favorites, absolutely. And and the only motion on the entire piece, because he's sitting with his feet up on his desk, guys. The only motion is the paddle ball. Right. And it just works great because it tells you he's on the phone, but he's still, you know, it's JLI. They only take it so seriously. You know, in the background you can see is, I love the, the detail, the office detail that he put, like the Apple IIe or whatever that's on the table <laughs> behind him. And I love that he's a matrix printer. Right, a dot matrix printer. Yeah. I love they have the binoculars because that's what people do who li- who have offices really high up in the sky. They they keep binoculars because they look at other window through other windows and stuff. You know, he clearly he's been peeping on people in other buildings. I love this entry so freaking much. And uh, let's see what else. Um, I find the the alter egos hysterical. It says uh, alter egos amazing wombat man and maximum fourth force, and then it says both known only to himself. So I got to think that's Kevin Dooley having some fun there. 
there is a whole thing in here too. Oh, I got to find it. Where is it? Um, okay. So, because you know, I've, I've gone over the origin of Maxwell Lord on JLI. He, he started off being controlled by a computer. That wasn't the secret sanctuary he's finding, by the way. You said down in the inset picture. That's him finding the evil um, uh, apocalyptic com- or new god. Oh, whatever, that's new right. Computer. That's right. That's right. So uh, he, he, start, he talks about how he betrayed everyone, and then he came around, and he became a good guy. So it says here, uh, uh, at the risk of his life, he asserted his will against the computer. And on that day, Maxwell Lord, heartless, conniving Ponscombe, was virtually gone forever, replaced by the seemingly heartless and seemingly conniving and seemingly Ponscombe we now know today. <laughs> Which cracks me up, because Max stopped being you know, essentially a bad guy. But he's still pretty sleazy. He's still, a, you know, an '80s slash '90s sleazy business guy because corporations were the bad guys at that point in history. So, in, in popular culture, I love it. Absolutely love it. And uh, for more Maxwell Lord, you should definitely check out the JL Justice League International Bwahaha podcast. It is hosted by a dead sexy guy, so you should definitely check that out. I agree also, with uh, half of that. <laughs> also, our buddy Sphinx Magoo has started up a new uh, blog called Lordy Lordy Look Who's Dorky. So you should check that out as well. Uh, and Justice League, I mentioned earlier, is on JLA number 42 at this point, And Max is going to play a role in a couple upcoming issues. So you should check that out. All right. Next up is Metamorpho. Metamorpho. Uh, dun, 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 dun. Uh, one of my favorite characters, drawn by Mark Nelson, who am I completely unfamiliar with. Uh, he, at this point, for Nexus, Airboy, Aliens, a lot of independent stuff. Oh, okay. Yeah. I read some Airboy, too. And the reason he's uh, maybe affiliated this was because for DC, he was actually inking Pat Broderick on the covers of the Green Lantern issues, not the interiors, just on the covers. Hmm. Okay. Uh, One of the things I like about this entry is that it feels like it's the middle of a story we haven't read. Uh, Hmm. I like that. I like that because we see Metamorpho in this sort of like ancient crypt and we see that he's changing his hand into kind of like a jackhammer, sledgehammer type uh, shape. And then we see in the bottom corner like a little tentacle of some creature writhing up out of the out of the shadows. And so it feels like, yeah, this is, a, you know, page three of a Metamorpho story we're never going to get to read. So uh, Indiana I, Jones-ish, almost. Yeah, very Indiana jones So I dig it. And on the on the back, we see, the, we see him finding the orb, uh, which transforms him into Metamorpho. And then we see him with his supporting cast, where I'd say Mark Nelson went a little crazy, with some of the anatomy, uh, I would say. Um, yeah, Java? I, yeah, Java looks a little much. Uh, he looks like Mr. Creosote from uh, Monty Python. But uh, other than that, well, I think it's go, fun. Go back and look at the way Ramona Freighter drew him. And Ramona Freighter drew Java pretty crazy. Yeah, I, I, yeah, but I mean, hers was way more cartoony. And I feel like True. it works here. Is kind, of, kind of going for like more realistic kind of thing. It's, it's, I don't know. Doesn't doesn't totally work on me, but it's fine. Uh, first appearance was Brave and the Bold, number fifty-seven. Of course, drawn by Ramona Fraden, as you mentioned, he's a character creation of Bob Haney. Zany Bob Haney. Woo! First appeared in December nineteen sixty-four, January nineteen sixty-five. Uh, this is one of these characters that's like you know never been a big hit, but DC has gotten a lot of use out of over the decades. He was uh, he was potentially going to get his own cartoon series in the sixties. He of course appeared mm-hmm. on a Power Record. He had that famous song. Uh, he was in Wednesday Comics, where he was drawn by uh, Mike Allred, and he's been a mm. member of The Outsider. So he's always been around. And, he, of course, he was the most famous, uh, well, he's not the, yeah, probably the most famous, first, certainly the first superhero to tell the Justice League no. Yep. That was a big deal. Now, interestingly enough, though, at this point, he is known for being part of the Justice League because he's part of Justice League Europe right, at this right, point, right. which I think helped give him a lot of exposure. Um, even though, it, it, you know, interesting, look at a group affiliation. 
no mention of outsiders. No. Now they're mentioned in the text, but they're not mentioned in a group affiliation. I, th- I think that's just a miss. But uh, I think Justice League really gave him a big boost because he stayed a member of the Justice League for a long time because he starts with Justice League Europe, which eventually becomes Justice League International, which is very confusing. Uh, and then he moved over to Justice League America. So he was on there with like Wonder Woman and people like that. So that was a big deal. And he, he sort of stayed in the public consciousness ever since. He He's died a bunch of times, but he always seems to be around. Now, maybe in the last few years, he hasn't been around as much since the the whole rebirth, not rebirth, the new Fifty Two stuff. But before that, he kind of was hanging around somewhere at almost all times. Yeah, so. he's never far. It, interesting character. Uh, I really think the powers of weapons are kind of selling him short here because he can just about do anything he yeah, wants. Yeah, he only gets two sentences. He can transform yeah. himself into any combination of chemical elements. It can shape those elements into virtually any form. Well, geez, that's kind of a big deal, isn't it? Right, exactly. So, uh, at this point, Justice League Europe was on issue number seventeen, where they're fighting the extremists. So, uh, a lot of a lot of big action going on there. And of course, Metamorpho. And one of the big things in the story too is they talk about how Metamorpho now has a son, but he's separated from his son because Stag, of course, being Stag, is keeping Rex from seeing his son, things like that. So, for more on Metamorpho, you should check well, out again. What's that? I had something else I wanted to say about it. Oh, there is I'm there sorry, there, there is a line. It's in the final paragraph where it says Metamorpho has learned to deal with his inhumanity in a self-deprecating manner. Uh, despite his easygoing demeanor, he has a formidable temper, but he exhibits blah, 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 blah. I thought it was interesting um, that – this is uh, written by Mark Wade, by the way uh, – when they mention his inhumanity. Because to me, humanity is not a physical construct. It's a quality of being. You hmm. know what I mean? And so mm-hmm. to me, to the fact that his body is not a typical human body doesn't make him inhuman. And then that was just kind of – that's the whole shtick of the character is that he's more than human or differently than human because, as you mentioned, he can die, he can blow, he can turn into gas form, he can do all these sorts of things that the regular people cannot. But I just thought that was interesting because to me I never thought of him as not having humanity. You know, He's always a very I, kind I, soul, so it's just, he just is, can do lots of crazy stuff. I think probably then it's just a poor choice of words right, on Mark Waite's right. part because what they're really trying to convey is he was sort of a Ben Grimm character where he was, he was transformed into this beastly-looking form right. and was always trying to figure out a way to transform back. Right. Uh, whether you read the old Brave and the Bolds, uh, which I just read one recently with Metamorpho, which was awesome, where they, he's getting transformed back with the Metal Men, or in Justice League Europe, he's you know trying to be a father and all this stuff. He's always trying to transform back to being human, sort of like Ben Grimm. So I think that's really what they're trying to reference, yes, but maybe they didn't exactly. get it. Right. And, he, and he had you know he had a tough conversion really if you think about it because he was a humor comic. I mean he started off as a straight up goofy superhero comic. It was intended to be funny, you know, and it was. It was it was a big hoot. We did the first issue special and had an absolute blast with that thing. Laughed our butts off on it. And then they transitioned into the main DC universe. So you get to Outsiders and they have to you know deal with that there, and you get to Justice League and they're dealing with it further. So he he had a tough go of making him a little more mainstream, I think. Um, what else can I tell you? So, uh, oh yeah, for more information, definitely check out Michael Curious Gross, uh, non-existent Batman and the Outsiders blog. I uh, listen to the Just League International Blah Ha Ha podcast. We're only about six issues away from starting to talk about Just League Europe, so that'll be fun. And then also, there is a brand new uh, Tumblr put together by our buddy Michael O'Brien called T Rex, where the T stands for totally tubular. So. <laughs> Next up is Metron from the New Gods, created, of course, by Jack Kirby. First appeared in New Gods, number one, February, March, 1971. Uh, we see him in his super boss chair with all kinds of crazy Kirby stuff flying around. Of course, the art, though, in this case, is by Paris Collins and Will Bleiberg doing their best uh, sort of imitation. We even got some Kirby crackle going mm-hmm. on in the background. And we get the sense that we see that like he can sort of transcend time and space. We see the... 
there's a, several clocks and there's like gears and there's planets and there's a ruler and a, like a slide whistle probably somewhere in the background. I, uh, I guess that's like measuring tools because he's always measuring yes, things. Right, I guess exactly. that's what that's supposed to represent. Yeah. I mean, he's a scientist and they talk about that. So, and then on the insets we see him there in his chair and we see Darkseid uh, taking a look at him and then we see the sort of a. I don't know, just like have a generic sort of idea of them traveling through space. I guess we don't actually see him in the third panel. Mm-hmm. Um, this character's never done much for me. I just, I don't know. I mean, the new gods have always had a tough time with it. This guy, I don't know, just never connected with him. And the, I read, I read the entry, and I have to admit, like about halfway through, I was like, oh, okay. It's not just you. I think a lot of people have a hard time connecting with him. Part of it is, you know, it says occupation scientist. It should say also occupation douchebag, because he's never pleasant. He's he's always kind of on the wrong side of the good guys. You know, he's he's a good, he's he's not he's not the Doctor Smith of the New Gods, but he's basically he's he's on the good guy side, but he's a total jerk. Mm-hmm. No one likes him, and not even like in a fun way, like Guy Gardner. He's just unpleasant. Um, they talk, you know, so I, I never really liked him either. And yeah, his origin does get kind of like oh, okay. I'd rather just read the Jack Kirby comics. Thanks. Um, here's an interesting thing. You know that funky chair he's flying around is called it's the Mobius chair. Interestingly enough, Jeff Johns just retconned something not too long ago in the Dark Side War, uh, which I read was in uh, the New 52 Justice League era. Uh, it's a big war between Dark Side and the Anti Monitor. And what they reveal is that the Anti Monitor, before he became the Anti Monitor, was actually named Mobius. And that was his chair. And, you know, he becomes the Anti Monitor, and basically Metron stole it from him and, and took possession of it, which is kind of a cool, cool concept. Uh, it made for an interesting twist in the story where you're just like, what? So I kind of dug that. But I love the art. Love, 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 love the art. It does look like a great homage to Kirby. It's one of Paris Cullen's better ones of the New Gods, I think. Um, I love it. The backside? Mm, yawn. Sorry. Sorry, Mark Wade. Anyway, um, they are on New Gods number 19 at this point, so you can check that out. And for more information on Metron, uh, we talked about this last time. There is no real Fourth World podcast at least that our friends are running that we're aware of. Michael of- Michael Lane did contact me to tell me that he, of course, he started a new show called Kirby Cast, which is all oh. about Jack Kirby, and he said they will be getting to Fourth World stuff at some point. Fantastic! There we go, folks. Okay, the what's what's it called? Kirby Cast. Kirby Cast. Kirby Cast. Perfect. So check out Michael Lane's Kirby Cast. That's excellent, folks. Also, if you want more information, you can also check out our buddy Keith G. Baker has just opened a new nightclub. Uh, actually, you should support that. It's called the Mobius Strip. Er. So you should definitely check that out. Mobius Stripper. So, <laughs> You know, if you had a little uh, ceramic decoration for your lawn of Metron, that would be a metronome. It absolutely would be. I think you should buy some of those too, folks. <laughs> that was for Dr. Ange. Uh, next up is uh, Mordrew, drawn by Art Adams and Joe Rubenstein, which is kind of like... Uh, hell to oh, the yeah. Hell to the yeah. Now... Uh, Mordrew is in his, I guess this is what he looked like later on. They, they moved him off of his incredibly, what? Oh, okay. They moved him off of his very silly outfit, which we see on the inside. And of course, TV star Mordrew, as he appeared in the 1979 Legends of the Superheroes special. Uh, he's basically the Legion's big bad, right? Other than Darkseid. Because yeah, I don't I don't really count Darkseid. I know Darkseid was a, no. had a huge storyline, but I don't consider him a Legion villain. Mordrew was no, really no. their big guy, right? It's time, it's time Trapper and Mordrew are the big ones. And the Fatal Five, yeah. Time Trapper, who was recently defeated by... What was that story we were looking at? He was like defeated by somebody really lame, and I was like, wow, yeah, Time Trapper? Yeah. yeah, okay. It's comics. You know, so, anyway. okay. But anyway... It's a great the, Mordrew piece. Oh, my the, God. The, this piece by Mordrew, it's, it's him over... Uh, he's like bringing up an incantation, and there's all this... Good, it's, it looks... It's just... The lighting is coming up. It's 
it's really great. I mean, it looks just <laughs> absolutely fantastic. Art Adams is bringing it as usual. You you can tell it's good because Rob didn't finish any one of those six sentences he started. No, he I started didn't. and trailed off. It's that good. He couldn't put his words together. And of course, it has the big Legion of Superheroes logo on it because it's that's what they and they did that earlier too. By the way, we didn't say it, but they have the trade dress for all the Legion characters. They they had that on um, Laurel Gand as well. It's beautiful. Yeah, he wore this um, in 5YL, they, around issue 5, they did this amazing story where Mordru changed all of history. And he basically was in charge, and every, he controlled the world, the universe, whatever, and he changed what he looked like. This is what he wore. And so they have kept it here. It lo- obviously, it looks much better than the other version. He looks absolutely fantastic. Um, the backside does talk about his 20th century origins. They had retcons to make him part of the Amethyst world and gem world because we always knew Mordrew had a history. Well, that's where they said, oh, he started off in the 20th century. And uh, and then they do go on here. And an interesting piece, they said, he is indirectly caused the formation of the Legion of Superheroes. And what they mean by that oh, is So that- I have him to blame. Right, exactly, yeah. Mordrew was so dangerous that people predicted he would take control of the entire universe. So instead, these other forces, people that opposed Mordrew, created a series of events that would create the Legion. So basically, people that didn't like Mordrew set things up so the Legion would come to be to battle Mordrew and prevent him from becoming all-powerful. Um, because these people thought they would become all-powerful, but the Legion stopped them too. So uh, I, I think it's supposed to... I think they're hinting at Glorith, but I'm not really sure. I, I don't know if that's accurate or not. It doesn't say that here, and that's what my memory says, but you know, who knows? I can't trust myself. So at this point, Legion of Superheroes is on issue 11. Uh, issue 5 was the big deal with Mordrew, where they not only did... Mordrew changed history, but also reset Legion continuity. It was a it was a patch for post continuity, uh, post crisis stuff. I love it. Art Adams, wow. I mean, when Art Adams wanted to draw some in the '90s, you just back up and go, okay, go for it, man, because he is absolutely fantastic. Yeah. So for more on Mordrew, uh, you should check out the Legion of Super Bloggers, of course, or our buddy Little Russell Burbage has actually started. Uh, he's got a new hip hop album coming out called The Mordrew Crew. You should check that out. Dear, Lord. I think track four is going to be really good. <laughs> Next up is Motherbox, uh, which is, of course, uh, designated as technology. It's not a character. Created by Jack Kirby. First appeared in The Forever People, number one. So at least that book gave us something. <sighs> uh, yeah. Uh, drawn by Rick Hoberg and Wick, Will Blyberg. A lot of Bergs here. We see the, the, the image that we always see with the Motherbox, which is uh, Orion, angry Orion, uh, putting up uh, his iPhone to his face, and he flashes it himself, and then he's normal Orion, as we sort of suggest. Um, yeah, the mother box is one of these concepts that, like, again, with the, I, I'm trying so hard with the fourth world, <laughs> I really do, because I just think it looks, it seems so cool, and there's just something about it. I just can't. I read these. I really did read these entries, and again, these are only a couple paragraphs. But again, halfway through, I would just kind of just start going, ugh. It's it a lot more than so a couple paragraphs, bored. dude. It's three columns. It's block text. Well, it's tons I mean, of text. I don't know. It's not It's not that much for me to read, really. But I don't know. I, I, I just, I don't know. I don't know what my problem is with the fourth world. <laughs> I don't know that Motherbox served his own entry. I mean, honestly. Uh, it's a pretty it, big it seems piece like a of DC history, though. I mean, I will What's say. What's that? pretty big piece of dc history though i will say it is but it should just be mentioned in every single fourth world entry rather than having its own i would say but now here's where i have to step back and tell myself i'm wrong Motherbox, star of feature film That's i mean right. justice league was all about the mother box you know, it wasn't it wasn't exactly what a mother box was but still it was pretty damn amazing that it was in there so yeah okay um, New Gods, again, on issue number 19. Uh, definitely check out the Kirby cast. Also, um, our buddy Max Travers has started a new YouTube series. It's a romantic comedy called Calabac and I. You should check that out. Thanks. 
Uh, okay. Uh, next up is the Mud Pack, which was the team of uh, villains comprising of the four Clayfaces from Batman's history. Clayface 1, Clayface 2, Clayface 3, and Clayface 4. Drawn by I don't Norm. I think that part was implied, but anyway. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> I, thank you. I feel I had to explain that. Drawn by Norm Bravefogle, which means it's great. Uh, drawn by who? Norm Bravefogle. Who? Oh, freaking Norm Bravefogle. I forgot. Thank you. Forgot Norm freaking Bravefogle is what we say on this network, sir. Yes. Okay. Praise be his name. No, Norm Bravefogle. <laughs> uh, on the insets, we see the original Clayface, the Basil Carlo guy about to stab Robin and Batman flying in to save him. And then on the other inset, we see Clayface 3 and Clayface 4 as they have uh, decided to give up the villain game and go off and be in a relationship together, which I actually really like. That's my favorite detail of this, is that <laughs> the two freaks... Well, they're all freaks, really, of, of the... But, I mean, in terms of... Well, you know, I was about to say, the only, the only one who's not a complete horrific person is the first one, the Basil Carlo right. one, but the other three. But I love that the Clayface 3 and Clayface 4... Went off together. I find that very sweet. And uh, that little, mm-hmm. little inset of them, these two horrible-looking creatures in each other's arms looking at a sunset, it's very twisted and romantic. I love it. A uh, couple different things. Uh, Clayface 2 is moments away at this point, uh, probably actually two years away, from becoming major star of cartoons, being the Clayface, basically the predominant Clayface in uh, Batman com- uh, cartoon. So that's a big I deal. I love that action figure, man. You just squeezed it and popped the mace out of his hand. It was awesome. <laughs> there is no first appearance listed here. No. Um, which is kind of interesting, which is unusual, but I guess because it's a group of people. Uh, here is where I'm going to say something that is sacrilegious. I don't know if that's the right term or not. This is a boring name, Norm Brayfogle piece. Um, I know, I know. Here's how it could have been fixed. One of the big letdowns is the coloring. Okay. Very flat coloring. Generic blue background. Lots of orange splashed all over the place. Uh, first of all, orange, it shouldn't it be more tan. But either way, the coloring really, if they'd done more gradients, really could have helped this image, I think, a lot. Also, if you had tilted it at about a, I don't know, 45-degree angle, would have changed the whole look and feel of this piece. You know, if you tilted it at a 45-degree angle, changed the coloring, this could have been an amazing piece. Instead, it looks very boring to me. Hmm. It's artistically rendered nicely, but it's just boring. I hear what you're saying, but I don't know. I like it. I like how mysterious. I like how the Clayface 4 is, you know, trying to seem alluring because she's basically naked. But right. then she's also a big pile of clay goo. Mm-hmm. Uh, and she's got her arms around Clayface 3. I, I don't know. I dig it. I like it. It's got a cartoony feel to it, but it's also horrific because these are all really scary looking guys. Basil Carlo, he's got that knife in his hand. He looks really bad. I don't know. I really, I really like this. I like this whole idea that Batman has been around so long that some of his villains, like there are made, you know, numerous iterations of his of his one of his villains, and then they get together to form a team. I think that's a neat sure, idea. Sure. Uh, is Clayface, I think to my mind, like he's like the last major Batman villain that has not made it to live action yet, right? I, they've uh, never done him. Well, you, you kind of caught me off guard there. I wasn't ready for that, but uh, maybe. Yeah, I'm, I'm sure we can come up with some others. Pretty, I mean, when you think about all the... Tonight, right? Yeah, I mean, you think about all the major Batman villains that made it into the TV series, the 60s TV series, and then the handful that didn't. Well, Clayface wasn't in the TV series, was he? Huh? Was Clayface in the TV series? No, that's what I'm saying. Oh, okay, okay, okay. I'm getting at. I'm saying if you list Batman's like top 10, 15 major villains, you get probably 10 of them in the TV series, and then there's a handful you didn't. They didn't get to Two Face, Scarecrow. They appeared in the movies. Clayface. Yeah, well, Hugo Hugo Strange hasn't made it yet. I guess so. He's probably the only other one. He's in Gotham now, but uh, but yeah. Oh, is he? Okay, well there you go. Yeah, you have one there then. Yeah, I. I guess because it's just hard to do him. You know, any version of Clay, and you could do the Basil Carlo one. 
But any yeah. of the other versions would be really yeah, it's all CGI. Yeah. All CGI. Now, so, someone, please. I'm Rob and I are doing off the top of our heads. I'm sure there's going to be some we hadn't thought of. Put it in the comments. You know, sure, uh, excellent. Um, now, going back to the art, I'll put this in perspective, Rob. It's a nice drawing, but remember the Marshall Rogers Clayface Three image from Who's Who? Yes, that's really very good. Yeah, compare that to this. See, this one's I don't know. I like this. I like. It. Uh, I dig it. Anyway, anyway. I like right. it too. It just it needed some help. Anyway, uh, Detective Comics uh, was on, which is where the Mudpack story was, is on issue six twenty one at this point, which is their Batman's dealing with the Obadiah Man, the man who's responsible for the death of Tim Drake's mother, uh, and the coma that his father ends up in. And for more on the Mudpack, you should check out the Nightcast, Batman Nightcast, on the Fire and Water Podcast Network, starring our buddies Ryan Daly and Chris Franklin, which has been on a bit of a hiatus, but is coming back. Yay! So check it out. Also, our buddy Noah Tarnow has uh, launched a new podcast called Here's Mud in Your Eye, so you should check that out as well. Uh, next up, Nyad, a Firestorm villain, uh, <laughs> although she's listed as Supernatural. Uh, the enthusiasm, Rob, is yes, just amazing. First appeared in Fire, Firestorm, the Nuclear Man, number 90, right near the end of that book's run, right? Mm-hmm, yep. Right? Okay. Drawn by Tom Mandrake, uh, former, uh, well, not former, but Cuber School, Cuber School grad. Tom Mandrake. So, Shag, tell us about Nyad. I know nothing about this guy. <laughs> I knew you were going to totally take a dodge on that one. <laughs> the gist of it is, okay, by this point in Firestorm's history, which this, this character is only about a year old at this point, Firestorm had become a fire elemental, okay? Uh, whereas Swamp Thing is the earth elemental, Firestorm became the fire elemental, and they decided to do this amazing storyline called the Elemental War in the Firestorm book, and which is where, you know, earth, water, fire, and wind would all come together in battle. And so they needed a water elemental because Daisy didn't have one. They already had Red Tornado as the air elemental. They already had Swamp Thing as earth and Firestorm as fire. So they created a water elemental. Uh, instead of making Aquaman it, thankfully, they created a new one called Nyad. And um, it's this woman named uh, Maya Miziaki. She is a uh, like Greenpeace sort of person, and she's out on the ship, and she's protesting a, an oil tanker, you know, rah, 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 and it ends up capsizing, and she dies, and the way the earth elementals work is you die in order to become an elemental. And so she died. The 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 Earth Mother Maya made her into a water elemental, and she was angry, just like most of the elementals start off. She's very angry. She wants to cleanse the world of humans. So um, they end up in this giant war between all the different elementals. And it was a nice storyline. It went for about four issues. It was very interesting to read. And John Ostringer really was writing a cutting-edge book at that time. A lot of people don't have fond memories of the elemental run of Firestorm because it wasn't very much like the previous Firestorm. But it was great, folks. I mean, this was a prototype not prototype, but a proto-Vertigo book. It was so close to the edge of being an early Vertigo book. All it needed was maybe some boobies and some swear words, and it could have been a, a Vertigo series. It was that good. And uh, it's a great run. I recommend you pick it up. Now, again, it's the... Uh, I can get on Comixology. I mean, for probably 99 cents an issue, I bet. Anyway, it's the Elemental War, and it was really entertaining. I liked it. So... Um, now, the Firestorm book had just ended the month before this, which is just a heartbreak to me. So there was no real Firestorm book to point you at. Tom Mandrake, uh, as you mentioned, was the artist on Firestorm at the time. So for more on Nyad, you can check out the, oh, I don't know, Aquaman and Firestorm, the Fire and Water podcast, where you can get more on Firestorm, where eventually we'll be talking about those issues. Or our buddy Mike... <clears throat> If I can say it right, our buddy Mark Baker Wright is starting up a new blog called All Washed Up, where he'll be talking about Nyad. So check that out. Looking forward to it. Uh, next is the Newsboy Legion, drawn Woo! by drawn by Carl Kiesel. Uh, the text is by Barbara and Carl Kiesel. 
I love this entry. I think this this listing of them as they as the team runs across two panels from their uh, Brooklyn neighborhood into the more modern the Project Cadmus thing, and we see the two different iterations of the Guardian. Uh, I think it's really delightful piece. Uh, they, they we see them with their little pink can. And Boss Moxie is a herpetological anomaly. Uh, and then the, the guardian looking down on them, sort of amused, and then we see him there on the other panel. It's really, really very beautiful. Although I do, it's kind of funny. Maybe part of it is because the the image is just cut off. In the bottom left, we see a newspaper, mm-hmm. and it just says as the headline, "Hitler." That's right. it. Not anything else. Just Hitler, which I think is sort of funny. Uh, they first well, appeared, it's trying to it's trying to make sure you understand the two different time right, periods. That this 1930s. is the 1930s or 40s, right? But and not crossing not, into the 1990s. Right, but not like Hitler declares war or Hitler's oh, dead. I just see. Hitler. That's it. <laughs> uh, Stalin. Okay. Their first appearance is in Star Spangled Comics number seven from 1942. And yep. then the new version, first appeared in Superman Annual number two from 1988. They are, of course, the creation of Joe Simon and Jack Kirby. I got to tell you, back to the art. You you said it. Carl Kiesel drew the hell out of this. It's thing. got such life to it. Such oh you my know, gosh. You feel like you, this feels like uh, the opening credits to an animated series we never got. Sure, sure. I mean, if you know nothing about the Newsboy Legion, this one piece of art will make you love them. It's just that that fast. It's that much fun. I love the whole idea here because what happened was they were again around in the 1940s, and the idea is by now in the 1980s they've grown up. They're all working in great professions, many of them scientists. They end up all, for different reasons, get recruited for Cadmus, and they're working together in Cadmus. And through a series of events, they end up creating clones of themselves. And those clones are running around just like they had their teenage adventures in the 40s. They're having those adventures now in the 80s. And they have a new member uh, named Flip. Uh, they, they, they've cloned one of the African-American scientists with them, so they've got a little, a little more representation. Thank you. And uh, it's, it's fun. It's super fun. It's a great way of, of digging up old concepts and dusting them off and kind of giving giving some new life to them. Life to them. I think it's a, yep. it's a neat thing. It's a neat thing. Tommy, Big Words, Gabby, Scrapper, and Flip. I love it. And then they've got uh, this alien, that hang, a DNA alien that hangs out with them called Angry Charlie at this point. And, 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 and then you see him flying around in the flying car from Cadmus. I mean, Cadmus was a great invention. For the 1980s, it really was. It was a great. I mean, I'm sorry, I shouldn't say it. no. That was that goes back to Kirby, doesn't it? Um, but it was utilized to great effect in the post-crisis universe, and Cadmus was absolutely fan fantastic. So I love, love I love that their car was called the Whiz Wagon. That's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> so. so definitely check out. Uh, by the way, uh, Superman was on uh, Superman number 47 at this point, just moments away from him uh, proposing to Lois. And this was uh, when, again, he's still fighting Blaze because that's that storyline that crossed over between both uh, comics. And for more, you can check out From Crisis to Crisis, Superman podcast, because that covers the Superman era. Or our buddy Philemon, uh, still, uh, it's amazing, after all these years, his web TV page is still up. Uh, and it's called Extra Extra Read All About It. So he talks about the Newsboy Legion, but somehow he keeps slipping in entries about Jericho. I don't know. Anyway, be sure to check that out. <laughs> There's also the blog, the Newsboy Legion of Super Bloggers. There it is. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, gee, how, did, how could I forget? <laughs> That's out there, too. <laughs> this is a Legion I like. Okay, next up is <laughs> The Secret Six. And in this case, it is the newer version, which first appeared in Action Comics Weekly number 601, although it does mention the original group's first appearance, which was in Secret Six. They got their own title right off the bat, April, May 1968. And the whole idea was there's this, there's this mysterious guy named Mockingbird who not who uh, has blackmail on six different people, and he can, uses that to get them to perform missions for him. And they had their own book, and the whole gist of it was, who is Mockingbird? Is it one of the team? Is it this whole thing? And then it was, it was. 
I don't think the book was meant to be, uh, obviously, because they didn't do this back in the 60s, like a miniseries. But it ended up sort of working out that way because the book was canceled, I think, after like seven issues. Mm. Uh, and it didn't get totally resolved, but it kind of does have you know, that sort of feeling of like a be- little bit of a beginning, middle, and end. It's got an amazing cover, the first issue, where it's a car going through a billboard. Check it out. Go, go to Mike's Amazing World. Look at the cover. You'll just absolutely love it. It caught my eye back when I was buying back issues as a kid, and I, I, I bought it sight unseen just because I thought the cover was so cool. But anyway... And, and, and the people that had blackmail on, they all had different professions or right. all hired for these these heists or whatever, gigs or whatever for a reason. So it had very much a Mission Impossible feel to absolutely, it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so the whole the whole deal is the Secret Six are back. They train... The, 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 the old group uh, is brought back out of retirement, and then they're all killed, and out of that rises... It literally says out of the ashes of the old group forms this new group, and they're much more like a kind of like a superhero team because they have powers and they have weapons, they have like super suits to give them all sorts of skills. So it's sort of like a more tricked up version of the old uh, Secret Six. And it talks about the the whole and it, it, they become like this sort of super missionary team and it says it ends with, today the new Secret Six stands prepared to combine their talents to keep democracy safe. Yawn. Um, Beautifully drawn by Steve Lytle though. Yeah, I, I do like that. I mean Steve Lytle's a great artist but in, in Sort of the twisted thing about this, really, is they didn't just get tech to be superheroes. They basically all had some sort of physical handicap. Right. One guy's blind. One person's deaf. One person can't feel or something like that. They all have a handicap. You know, I'm I'm not kidding. He gets a glove that lets him feel. Uh, And so Mockingbird uh, gives them all tech to, to supplement their senses that are missing. And that's what he's kind of holding over them. So I... This see, I, now, to be fair, I've never read it, but this version of the Secret Six holds no interest for me. The, the original sounds so cool. The Gail Simone version with the supervillains is so cool. This one's sort of stuck in the middle, and I go, Ugh. now if someone read the Action Comics version and tells me it's awesome, I'll be willing to check it out. But at, at this point, I have no interest. I, I wasn't a big fan. I bought Action Comics Weekly, and I remember not being that big on it because it was yeah. it was very kind of almost like kind of toyetic, you know, meant to be kind of like you mm-hmm. could sort of picture. They pitch this as probably like a toy line. You know, you're like, oh, this guy does this. This guy has power action legs, and it comes with it. So it, it was it, it was much more designed to be visually stimulating because the, the old Secret Six didn't have costumes. They were just in mm-hmm. like, suits and just ran around. Um, that wasn't obviously, I guess, they thought it was going to fly in the 80s and stuff. So they had to make them a little more like uh, – you know, like mask or almost not transformers. Centurions kind of or something. Centurions, yeah, something like that. Yeah. So, but I mean, it looks nice. And again, it's Steve Lytle, great artist, so it looks yeah. really, looks really pretty. Artistically, it's very cool. I love the back too because he gave little boxes around all the characters' heads yeah. and stuff like nice that. Little design. profile, and we see Mockingbird. Yeah. I think that logo, yep. very nice, very nice. You stuff, see, so. you see the one guy who stole Plastic Man's glasses. You know, yeah, it's pretty that's cool. Right, exactly. Um, so uh, now they haven't been seen since Action Comics Weekly, so they haven't been seen in like two years. But uh, for more. Right. You can, you can check out Action Comics Weekly Podcast by Chad Bokelman, or you can check out our buddy Michelle Fife actually has started a new fanzine called Best Kept Secret, so check that out. <laughs> I also love the Doris Day movie, uh, With Secret Six You Get Egg Roll. That's a good movie. There so you go. Fine. <laughs> yeah, I know you have no idea what movies I'm talking about. Not even a bit. I know. You don't even <laughs> understand. There's, Shag's like, that could be a real movie. I have no idea. So uh, <laughs> the final listing, Shag must be so excited. I'm uh, as, as excited as the character looks in it. There we go. Starman. This is Whoa! Starman 4? Uh, well, at the time. Starman 4, yes. Well, they had to insert another one in there for the 1950s. So, I mean, it's. One, the two, one? three. The yeah, nineteen. Yeah, this would be the fourth one. Okay. 
Who was the '50s Starman? Which one was that? Well, that was it. it they because there's the gold, there's, there's Ted Knight, and then there was the '70s hippie one, and then there's right. the adventure. There was one of the Prince. There's one of the 1950s, and if I remember right, this is well, I'm then a this foggy, would be guys. Starman Five. Then no, no, no. Wait. Oh yeah, it would. You're yeah. right. You're right. Yeah. Okay. So yeah, Ted Knight. Then you get the 1950s one, which, right. if I remember correctly, Batman dressed up as a character called Starman for a oh, few dear issues. Oh, God. Oh, my God. Then. Then you had Blue Skin Hippie Guy. Well, hold on. Hold on. James Robinson comes back, and I'm not oh. going to spoil the details of it. James Robinson has to come back and post-crisis patches that, because obviously Batman can't be Bat- you know, Starman in the 1950s. <laughs> so he comes up with another solution, which is insanely clever, and I won't say what it is. Um, they come up with an insanely clever way to patch who Starman in the 1950s. So yeah, you get Ted Knight, you get the 1950s, you get Disco Blue Alien, who goes by Mikhail later, you get uh, Prince Gavin, and then yeah, you get Will Payton. So this is Starman 5. Okay, yeah. all right. Now this is drawn by Dave Hoover, not Tom Lyle. That seems, yep. is Dave Hoover, Dave Hoover drawing the book at the time, I assume? In fact, he had just taken over uh, one issue ago. Yep. Okay. So he's, right. he's been on the book for two months now. Okay. Uh, he says, uh, as Starman, he's 400 pounds. Like extremely dense, he very very dense. So he gets okay. He changes his physiological form and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, I love the inset, the the one on the left, where it looks like uh, like his resume photo or something. Where he's getting his... it does, it does. Olin Mills, we should say Olin Mills, right on the bottom, shouldn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, and then we see him facing off Doctor Polaris, the aforementioned Doctor Polaris, and then him on the inset in his previous costume, uh, which <sighs> I actually kind of prefer. Oh, you're so broken. No, I like that it's a different color. I like it's unusual colors. The the, the current is. costume is black, white, and red. It's nice looking, but it's kind of typical superhero color. I like the the, the other costume is that it's it looks different. It's the peanut butter and jelly costume. Yes. I like that one. I dubbed it the peanut butter and jelly costume. At least right. I think I did. Maybe someone said it before me, but I, I that's how I've always seen it, is the peanut butter and jelly costume. And don't worry, you're in the majority. Most people like this one because it's also got some asymmetrical stuff like mm-hmm. one leg is peanut butter, one leg's jelly, you know, whatever. Um <laughs> But I, you know, and maybe it's because I came on the book. Now, on the shelves right now this month is Starman number 26, which was the first issue of Starman I ever bought, which changed the way I bought comics for years. Because leading up to – I've told the story a bunch of times. The, the abbreviated version was by this point in my comic reading history, I decided I was grown up. So I was only reading <laughs> – I was reading Starman. I was reading Doom Patrol. I was reading you know, any mature reader's book. I was reading uh, all these things. And I picked up Starman because I saw him on the cover of JLA number 42, which was on the shelves the same month, which is a recruitment issue. And Starman's going, no way! He refuses to join the JLA, which is like, that's interesting. So I picked it up. And when I found this comic, it was a revelation because I went back and picked up all the Roger Stern issues. That is such a fun run of superhero comics. In, in an era of dark, deep comic, you know, dark, dark, darkity dark comics, Roger Stern decided to write a – a fun superhero comedy. Basically, it's he took the place of Firestorm. Like you know, Firestorm was the young upcoming hero. Right. Well, Firestorm, the Shine had come off Firestorm. Sorry, guys. And by this point, and so they created a new guy who basically the Shine was on him. Starman. Everyone loved Starman because he was fun. He was upbeat. He was having fun. He loved his powers. You know, his the, what you didn't describe on the cover are the entry, the art. He is he's zooming up in the air and he's kind of got his arms outstretched. He's got his arc, back arc and he is just happy. He is reveling and flying around. He's enjoying it. You can see the happiness on his face. That's not a grrr. That's a smile. And uh, Roger Stern, it was almost kind of meta, really, to some extent. Because all the time he was, like, trying to – I remember one issue where he's pulling um, a a cargo ship, you know, by the chain, like Superman would always do. And he's thinking to himself, what would Superman do? So it was very much sort of a meta, like, how do I be a better superhero in a world where superheroes are real? 
So that was really cool. Right, and they talk about that in the listing where it says he recognizes his inexperience as a superhero developing a sense of responsibility, will slowly practice using his abilities and testing his limitations, usually with Jane's help. He then set out to aid people wherever necessary throughout the Southwest, which, again, I did like that. Like, he's in a location that most superheroes are not. Exactly, exactly. Um, you you talked about the Peanut Butter Jelly costume. I prefer the black costume. It may be because that's when I came into the book he was wearing the black costume. Uh, I just think it looks better. I think it looks cleaner. I, I, I like the, the red piping on it. I just think – yes, it is a little more generic, but I think it just looks awesome. Now, here's where the mistake was. They kept Starman in his own book, and therefore as sales declined, they put less prominent artists on it. They, they tried to put Mike Mignola on the covers. They thought that might boost sales. No, he's not. He's a great artist. He is not the right artist for Starman, though. And so eventually they sacrificed him at the altar of Eclipse of the Darkness Within, which was sad. They shouldn't have. If they had used Starman in maybe one of the Justice League titles or maybe Teen Titans or something, if they had used Starman elsewhere and got more exposure in the DC Universe, I think this character would have been bigger and would have been more popular. Mm. And I wish he, he could have survived longer. Now, that's a double-edged sword because then we wouldn't have got James Robinson's amazing Starman run. So either way, um, another thing that attracted me to the character besides the fact that he turned the JLA down was this issue again, number 26, I picked up, they, I, they, in, you know, they connected him to legacy because at, at no point in the Starman run, was there any connection to the legacies of Starman whatsoever? But in Starman 26, uh, Ted Knight's son, David Knight shows up and says, Hey pal, you're using my dad's name. I'm Starman. And he's wearing the classic golden age Starman costume. And Bill Payton's like, dude, I don't even know what you're talking about. Sorry, I'm not trying to infringe on anyone. And it was a really interesting story. Um, and, and the Mist came back, changed his name to Nimbus because, you know, 90s. But um, it, that's what it got me reading it too, is this interesting idea, because I love the JSA, was this legacy idea, and boom, I was all in. And it changed the way I bought comics because I was like, wow, I can enjoy fun superhero comics again instead of just all these dark, dark, darkity dark comics. And uh, that, this character I love so very much. Anyway. I'm going to say I'm very surprised you did not add him to your Fantasy Jail Detroit lineup. Too early. He wasn't around in 1985. Oh, that's true. I didn't think of it. Yeah, I, yeah the carnival blends together for me. Okay. Yep. He would have been great in the JLA, though. Yep. He would have took the place of Firestorm as, because I mean, he's super powerful. I mean, he's crazy powerful. Um, in fact, the whole origin thing is, so the satellite's in space. It's supposed to beam down these powers to these people called the Power Elite. And unfortunately, something goes wrong, and he ends up getting the powers that were intended for 10 different people. He gets all of those powers, so he's crazy powerful. And uh, anyway, and he got, also he had a shape-changing sort of thing, a mild shape-changing, where he could morph his face so he could look like different people. Um, and so he could actually disguise himself. So that's why Starman looked different from Will Payton. So that's how that worked. Changes hair color and all that. Anyway, uh, for more information on Starman, you should check out the Starman Manhunter Adventure Hour, as we talked about. Or our buddy Sean Ross has a new MySpace page called Oh My Stars and Garters. You should check that out as well. <laughs> and, uh, well, that's going to do it. That's the last listing. The, the last thing we have to talk about is just briefly a preview for issue three where we see a black and white version of that issue's cover, which is a... Nice piece of Green Lantern by Pat Broderick flying through space. Uh, Green Lantern yep. flying through space, not Pat Broderick. He's not flying through space. <laughs> uh, and then we have the back cover where they're talking about all the various images and, and all the various features of this book. So uh, that's it. That's it for Who's Who number two. The last thing I want to touch on is I, I'll, I, I'll give you a second to start flipping through them. I will tell you my favorite entries of the book because I think there's some really outstanding ones in this one. I think Mordrew by Art Adams is amazing. I think Flame Bird by Kev McGuire is awesome. I think I think Flash is a great – I know you say, he's flying. I think uh, that Flash image by That's Greg a good imitation of me, by the way. <laughs> it does. Uh, I think Maxwell Lord by Ty Templeton yes. is definitely one of the sta- – for such a static, generic office scene, it's done so well. Um, Newsboy Legion by Carl Kiesel. 
absolutely one of the best ones. And I think Starman by Dave Hooper because of the sheer funness of it. It's just so much fun. So those are, those are my picks. You got any others you want to add? Uh, I really did like the Mud Pack drawing, although maybe just because I like the team so much. But I agree. Sure. I think Maxwell Lord, Mordrew, Newsboy Legion, those are probably the, the strongest of the, the entries. Okay. All right. Well, that was a lot of fun. Those were awesome. And lots and lots and lots of blogs and podcasts for you guys to go listen to now. Get out there and check those out, folks. Um, well, we're going to take a quick podcast promo break. Check these out. Brand new promos, I think, right? These are hot off the presses. Yeah, these and shows are coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Yep. And when we come back, we're going to do your listener feedback from issue number one. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday. Get ready. The FWPN Battle Zone is coming your way. Hard-hitting, high-flying, flame-igniting, bubble-blowing action. Pulse-pounding matches every week, including an epic no-rules match. Featuring legendary FWPN nightmare Aqua Rob. <laughs> versus former OUAG Tag Team Champion Fire Shag. <laughs> and I'm gonna beat you up, Jay and Silent Bob style. <laughs> With a special appearance of Solomon Grundy and the Little Professor Man. Little fluffy bunnies, and much, much more. Sunday, Sunday, Sunday! At 11 a.m. Eastern, local broadcast times may vary. Full details at firewaterpodcast.com. New from Kenner, the Fire and Water Podcast Network collection, each sold separately with power action feature. The irredeemable Shags has his now socially inappropriate catchphrase. Rob Kelly transforms into a box. Ryan Daly's face changes from bemused to despondent. Pretend he just watched The Last Jedi. Cindy Franklin packs a power punch. Dip Chris Franklin in water to see his color change bruises magically appear. Siskoid comes with a real working Legion flight ring you can wear. Billy, get down from there. Collect all the Series 1 action figures for exciting podcasting adventures. Series 2 coming soon. The Fire and Water Podcast Network Collection. Coming exclusively this fall, only to Toys R Us. And be sure to check out those shows coming soon to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Now, we are going to cover your feedback from episode one, or episode one of the Who's Who in the DC Universe. It's a lot. As we said, we received more feedback for this single episode than we ever have for any individual show ever. So we are going to do our best to blow through this as quickly as possible, folks, because this episode is already like seven hours long, even though Rob promised a 37-minute show. So Couldn't get you to shut up. Oh, yeah, because it was my fault this time. Uh-huh. So, anyway, we're going to dive into who's who, hows, and whys. First up is our iTunes reviews. So, we've got quite a few out there, folks, but we always would love to have more. It helps raise the profile of the show. And with the old who's who show on the feed, had a million reviews. This one only has so many. So, please, Rob, you want to take it away? Yes, the first one is from Sean at Sergey Bamba. Uh, heading to Apocalypse and leaving a positive review. Both my DC Origins and FW Podcast Origins are tied to Who's Who. Years ago, I needed Who's Who as a necessary supplement for diving headfirst into Crisis as my first DC re. Can you imagine that? I've been it, beyond help since me day one. <laughs> Flash forward, this particular podcast was my introduction to Shag, Rob Kelly, and the wonderful world and the cast of characters at Fire and Water. <laughs> While others uh, could maybe see a series like this as an insurmountable chore, Yep. For old school comic nerd geek dorks like me, it's pure manna from heaven. Books like this were Wikipedia before Wikipedia. And both Shag and Rob make the audio, audio travels through these books, both bound and loose leaf, a fun and informative experience. Highly recommended to you fellow kids, both young and old, who enjoy delving into these long, ridiculous decades of comics material and hold encyclopedia books like Who's Who close to your heart. Thank you, Sean at Sergey Bamba. That's a great review. 
That was very kind, very lovely. And by the way, if you are kind enough to write us an iTunes review, we do read your review in entirety on the show as a thank you. Everyone else is just getting truncated. You guys get the whole thing. For example, Joseph Kimbler from DC Comics Vault wrote, The first podcast that kept my attention. I'm a diehard DC Comics fan and absolutely love this show. Rob and Shag do a great job describing the characters, art and history, so that everyone can learn something. Whether you know the characters' first appearances by memory or hearing about them for the first time, you will enjoy this team. I have tried to listen to other podcasts over the years, but while the topics were interesting, the hosts were lackluster. I think he's talking about Ryan Daly. Anyway, with the Who's Who... (laughs) That was me editorializing. With the Who's Who podcast, you get it all. I've even branched out to try other podcasts on the network. Other than Ryan Daly. Uh, Keep up the great work. (laughs) (laughs) Michael, I'm just leaving that alone. Michael O'Brien says, the definitive podcast of the podcast universe. Shag and Rob are the Cain and Abel of House of Who's Who. I buy that. Through their experience, yeah, really. Through their experience of the DC universe and comics history, along with their humorous insights, they will walk both newcomers and old veterans alike through the vast history of the DC universe. This podcast is directly responsible for me purchasing a new set of the original series, as well as a first-time purchase of the Loose Leaf. I've also been turned on to numerous trade recommendations I may have passed before. Speaking of recommendations, the hosts will go out of their way to spread the word about tangentially related podcasts and blogs. If you have not tried the show and you are a comic fan, you are doing yourself a disservice. Thanks. Thank you, Michael, uh, who I assume is the son of Eel O'Brien. He is. He is. And uh, based on what Michael wrote, dear economy, you're welcome. Yeah, so, seriously. <laughs> uh, then we heard from our buddy Kyle Benning, woo, who, uh, who, who in, in his history has had a number of blogs and podcasts. Uh, he's letting that kind of lie low right now because he's spending a lot of time with his family. But great guy, a lot of great podcasts and blog history. Uh, Kyle wrote, Nostalgic Feel Goods, one of the top five greatest comic podcasts available on the internet. A fantastic podcast devoted to the various DC Who's Who series. Robin Shag knocked the coverage out of the park, resulting in an entertaining audio trip down memory lane. It's a home run. Five stars. Well, thank you, Kyle. Sincerely appreciate that. Yes, thank you, Kyle. Uh, we got a comment, a, a review from Wendell Fish, uh, a.k.a. potentially Lenny Jennison. That's my suspicion. I, I did a lot of research trying to figure out who Wendell Fish was. I think that's who it is, Lenny Jennison. If, okay. if so, let us know, Lenny. Okay. Uh, wow. The only thing more impressive than binge listening to a podcast about a series which was printed 30 years ago is dot, 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 finding it randomly six years after it aired. Robin <laughs> Shagger, great duo who truly make every episode a must-binge as they go page by page of a who's who as titled of the DC Universe. I thought I was the only geek out there who initially loved these when I found them in my local comic shop, but clearly not. Time to get on my mycomicshop.com to find, to find all these back issues. Woo! Get yourself the binders, too. They're so good! All right. Well, folks, thank you for those iTunes reviews. Please, please leave us more. Uh, if you haven't left a uh, iTunes review, I know you're about to. I just know it. I can feel it. If not, then I hope you end up in apocalypse. So anyway, um, the rest of this feedback is going to come is pulled from our website, uh, which is firewaterpodcast.com. That's where most of the action takes place there. That's where 91 of these comments were found on our website. Holy crap. Also from emails, Facebook, Twitter, things like that. And we are going, as we said, we're just going to pick and choose certain things to get it across. First one comes from Siskoid, who's a part of our Fire and Water Podcast Network. He does a number of shows, including Fire uh, First Strike Invasion Podcast. Woo. So he writes, The Bug, talking about Blue Beetle's bug. So you're going to read that jokey paragraph, Shag, but you're not going to give credit to Monty Python's Flying Circus, because that's the Spanish Inquisition sketch. Dude, I totally missed that. I didn't realize it was Spanish. I, I, I didn't remember it was Spanish Inquisition. And here's the more important thing. I got over Monty Python when I was 14. That's why. Okay? Grow up. 
Anyway, wow. uh, up next, Siskoid writes, well, come on, really? Everyone's done with that. Anyway. Oh, uh, my God. <laughs> I just pissed off a lot of people. Siskoid uh, goes on to say, I forgive you only because we share the same reaction to the Brotherhood of Dada. The painting that ate Paris is one of my favorite comic stories of all time. Well done, Siskoid. We're back on the same page. Hopefully you've forgiven me now for what I just said. Uh, Challengers the Unknown, or as he calls them, Chals. Uh, I really like the post-crisis miniseries, one of those weird, could-have-been-vertigo vertigo takes on classic characters. Interesting. That's one of the few people that actually spoke up positively for that miniseries, so very cool. Then on Fire, uh, or specifically the character Fire, because I love the idea of showing various scenes from her history, uh, like a serpent on those posters behind her. You know, that's a good point, Cisco. It really did focus quite nicely as the serpent in the original Who's Who. And then Geoforce, he goes, uh, the boot belongs to Heatwave, because we talked about we didn't know who that random boot was that he was throwing around people. And then Cisco goes on to say, why, why, why am I the outsider's expert of this group? Hashtag cursed. <laughs> then uh, Ocean Master, he goes, uh, the art, we, we talked about Kurt Swan and Joe Rubenstein. He says, I think the fault of Rubenstein, Rubenstein here doesn't look like proper Swan. And you know, Cisco, you may have a point because we saw uh, Swan and Breeding this issue. Breeding, yeah. And it was gorgeous. So you may be right. Then regarding five year later stuff, Kono and Cosmic Boy, he writes, What do we think of these special trade dresses for certain families of books? Well, Legion and Acronym Legion will eventually be joined by Doom Patrol on that score, but they haven't thought of that yet, as the Brotherhood of Dada doesn't have it. So, I guess a few other groups did get their trade dress. And Stanley and his monster. This is where I screwed up, folks. I told you guys on the last three years too early. I said the Stanley's Monster miniseries wouldn't be for three years, and I couldn't believe that it was a Who's Who entry and for three years and with nothing else. I forgot that there was actually uh, – Foglio did a Secret Origins right, issue. me too. In, in number 48 that came out before the Who's Who. There we go. And Ryan would be disappointed in me. And in fact, I think I may have been on that episode. Not talking about Stanley, but I think I may have been on that episode. Either way. Um, so the miniseries was then a spring. So you get the, the, the Secret Origins, Who's Who, and then the miniseries. So my bad. Sorry about that, folks. Then Cisco, oh, Luke Giaconetti responds. We haven't heard from Luke Giaconetti in forever. Luke is, uh, he, he does the Hawkman blog, Being Carter uh, being Carter Hall. Also does a podcast called Earth's Destruction Directive, and he's on several others on the Two True Freaks Network. He quotes Siskoid going, why, why, why am I the outsider's expert of this group? And Luke's uh, response is, is it because I haven't listened to a show in a few years? I think it is, Luke, because Luke was our uh, the one man who would stand up for the outsiders. Welcome back, Giaconetti. He's a cop on the edge. Did you know that? I think I still got for the outsiders. Well, I'm okay. Fair enough. True. But Luke was always there in the comments. You know, he was. He was in the trenches, if you will. Uh, we got a message from Paul Hicks from the Waiting from Doom podcast, all the way from Australia. Good job on that Great. marriage equality thing, guys. Uh, he says thanks for the shout outs to me. Not sure what prompted them. The challenges of the unknown miniseries was great, but in the early issues, it looked like Jeff Lowe's was crapping, Jeff Lowe's, was crapping on the team <laughs> history before bringing it back to a past-respecting evolution. Ocean Master, I'm mesmerized by that eel. It has button eyes like it's a sock puppet-eel hybrid. It does look like a, it does it look like like a, a muppet. muppet. Yeah. And then Hawk, looks great, love it. What the hell is he talking about? That run established that Hawk wasn't human in the transformation. That's the point he's talking about. That's why the anatomy's so wonky. Oh, Lord. Okay, whatever. And you, anyway. and you forgot one thing. Yes. Paul Hicks, Paul Hicks, Paul Hicks. Paul Hicks, Paul Hicks, yes. We don't do uh, what's-his-name anymore. <laughs> well, we haven't heard from him in a long time. Yeah, we gotta, he's got to come back. Uh, anyway, the next comment is from David A. Gutierrez, the executive producer of Pod Dylan. He says, so it finally begins. Another great installment of the crown jewel of the Fire and Water Sunday shows. Tackling this specific format makes for rich ground for someone clearly so in love with the material he's almost unable to be critical, Shag, and a skeptic <laughs> who keeps a measured and logical view of things, Top Kelly. 
like the X-Files, but cast with dual Skinners. <laughs> Regarding Kurt Swan, like my bro, bro, Rob, I'm not into that. I'm not that into his work, particularly here. I get his significance, sure. But overall, his work is pretty stiff of an era, of which I'm not particularly fond. Say what you want, Rob Kelly. Get political. Go against the grain. Just be Rob, Rob, except when you criticize Highlander. By the way, I said against instead of against because that's what he typed. And he says, unlike Rob, I'm a huge fan of Morrison's Doom Patrol. It's easy to see how it could be seen as weird for weird's sake, but I urge the Yankee host of this podcast to give it a try. It can get up its own ass, as a good deal of Morrison's work can, but it's worth a shot. It was a college read for me and probably bears a reread. Shag, does it hold up decades later, or is it pretentious and overwritten? I don't know because I haven't read them since I was in college either. And, I mean, that's really the age to read pretentious stuff is when you're in college. Uh, you know, Paul Hicks, though, he's been talking about it, and he seems to still love it. So I, I'm going to have to trust his judgment that the Morrison stuff still holds up. I need to reread it. That, oh, the painting in A Paris. Uh, I need to reread that. So good. I'm picturing uh, you as all pretentious in college, and you're reading, like, John Paul Sartre and the Albert Camus and, and your Batman comics, of course. Dude, I had, you know, the long hair. I had the bangs that came down past my, you know, eyeballs. I had the little round circle reflective sunglasses. I drove a, I drove a Jeep. I wore vests. I mean, it was, I was so 90s. It was, I was so 80s before that, and I was so 90s after that. It was sick. Apartheid is so wrong, man. I think we can stop it from the quad. Shut up. And I did not I did not shop a chess king, no matter what David A. Scudier says. Anyway, uh, Mark Baker Wright replied to uh, David from – by the way, Mark Baker Wright is from Black Rock's Toy Box. And he says, I imagine that Rob and I may be the only ones not to care for Morrison's Doom Patrol. I'm already on record as perhaps the only comic book fan in existence who actively dislikes most of Morrison's work. To paraphrase what Rob said regarding Doom Patrol, it often seems he's just trying too hard to be cool and offbeat, which results in stories that are simply incoherent or require an extensive knowledge of the outside works to appreciate. It's just not for me. And I would agree with that by the end of his run in Doom Patrol. It, it, it became a bit automatic poetry and a little indecipherable. But the first half, if not three quarters of his Doom Patrol run is freaking amazing. Just so good. So freaking good. They heard from our buddy Nicholas Prom from the Comic Reflections podcast. He says, regarding a New Gods podcast, I wish I had the time because I really would love to start a podcast to go through the Jack Kirby Fourth World Omnibus. As for Esteban Moroto's beautiful art and appreciation of boobies in comics, the man drew many beautiful stories for Warren in Creepy and Eerie that often had topless gals, sure lovingly did. rendered by the phenomenal Mr. Moroto. Very cool. Uh, we got a message from Chris Franklin, of course, from part of our network. Uh, he does uh, he does a JLU cast, which is just started. And uh, by the time you'll be hearing the Superman movie minute, will almost be over. Uh, <laughs> finally coming down in the final few minutes of that movie. But anyway, he says, uh, still listening. Are you, you going to spend minutes and minutes talking about the credits? Yes, I am. Yes, we are. Okay. All right. Just yes, curious. Yeah. It's part of the movie. Uh, he says, I'm still listening, but I'll sit down my white lightning for a bit and leave a few comments. <laughs> I agree with Siskoy that Rubenstein probably dropped the ball on Swan's art on Ocean Master. Almost no one in his 50-year career inked Swan properly. Murphy Anderson, Al Williamson, and George Perez come close. If you've ever seen Swan's pencils, you'll note the Brian Ballin-like level of detail and feather lines he puts in. At this point in comic printing, someone should have been able to recreate that, but few tried. Too bad Swan rarely inked his own work. You know, that would have been interesting if they took some of Kurt Swan's pencils and went straight to print. Like they did, um, was it Gene Collins, Nathaniel Dusk? Is that what that was? Yeah, Gene, yes, they did do that, yeah. Yeah, that would have been cool to see Swan like that. Yeah. Uh, Chris goes on, after he put down his moonshine, goes on to say, I believe Craig Blazefield was tapped as the artist for an Outsiders relaunch that got delayed until 1993, right, like the Stanley was talking Monster. about, yeah. 
Yep. If memory serves, he drew a few more outsider characters, but by the time the series hit shelves, Paul Pelletier was the artist. Now, it's interesting. If, by the way, if you look at Paul Pelletier drawing outsiders compared to the Paul Pelletier we got in Aquaman, worlds of difference. He was drawing so 90s in the 90s. <laughs> um, so that what we got much later was uh, very different. So, um, Okay, he talks about Orion. He goes, Orion, oof. That's ugly. It looks like Orion's eyes are popping out a la Total Recall. I like Paris Collins, but some of his New God stuff looks very dated. He was channeling a bit too much of Marvel slash Image stylings at this point. And <clears throat> I had said something about Chris Franklin having a letter in Who's Who. You were like, ah, really? I don't remember that. Chris writes back, yes, I had a letter published in Who's Who. God help me. I'm going to start assembling armor for all the ribbing I'm going to get for it. Oh, Chris, I can't wait to read it. I really hope it's as nerdy as it should be. <laughs> Then we heard from our buddy DC Dave, or OCD Dave, as we said, uh, or OC Dave, however you want to say it. But anyway, uh, he seemed to really get a, hit, uh, a kick out of us saying that. He goes, you guys really put me in stitches when you read my note. And he said, two things I've learned from this episode. Shag, I'm guessing you and I are the same age, since I, too, was 18 in 1990. And Rob, you and I like the same, have the same response to Morrison's Doom Patrol. Next! <laughs> Jeez, look at all these Doom Patrol haters, you people. Oh, my gosh. I hope the Scissorman get you. Uh, then Michael Bailey from the Fortress of Bailey 2 Podcast Network says, since Shag asked, because I did specifically ask Michael Bailey about Jerry Ordway's Superman writing, draw art that Rob loved and I was a little uh, so-so on, he goes, I love Jerry Ordway's Superman, both writing and art, and I agree with Rob that he is in the t one of the top three greatest Superman artists of all time, definitely in the top five. The problem with this specific piece is that, well, I agree with Shag. Look at that! I am frame, I'm printing this and framing it and putting it on my wall. Anyway, it goes on to say there's something off about the face. I don't know what it is. It's just not right. The composition's great. They put a lot of thought into this version of Metropolis, and the art on me, the art on the other side is great. But the lighting, the face, and as Rob put it, the weird colored logo uh, brings it down just a bit. Uh, but down, <laughs> but down a little bit. Ordway is still better than most artists in their best day. That's true. That's fair. Then Michael Bailey said, um, I think Shag Matthews should have added. Quote, and it's before 2005 to his statement that if you're a DC Comics and you want to put Superman on the cover uh, of your first issue, who's who? Basically, I said, yes, it's the first issue, who's who, requires Superman. And then he's saying, after 2005, that's no longer true. Anyway. Yeah, yep. And uh, he goes, and I did, here you go, because we keep talking about using your binders in school, right? He says, and I did use the Perez binder to hold the script to the Hobbit musical I was in at the time. That is the greatest uh, sense I've ever read. And sadly, he goes on, it was sort of defaced by a fellow cast member. It doesn't look terrible, but it pissed me off at the time. That is, it's just amazing. <laughs> uh, he also says, I would also put my favorite entries as the wallpaper of the Clearview binders I used in school. And just to let Rob know, he's right. It did not result in me having any kind of success with the opposite sex. Shocking, I know. Uh, I, I would say you did okay for yourself eventually, Michael. Yes, yes, he did. Uh, Max Traver writes in to say, Great job, guys. Well worth the wait. If I had any idea how to do it, I would be sorely tempted to start the Strangely Missing Fourth World podcast, the Boomcast, the Sourcecast. But thankfully, I have no idea how to do so, and what little I can deduce about the process is an awful lot of work. Still, there's a... Uh, a there's about the idea of Robin Shag knowing that someone out there is talking about the Forever People every month. <laughs> well, I can tell you that doing a podcast can't be that hard because Rob does it all the time. He just records and slaps an opening on there, and he doesn't even do any editing. So it's fine. It's not hard at all, Max. Uh, <laughs> that's a lie. Anyway, there's a whole bunch of additional comments here, people trying to encourage him to do it, and uh, lots of feedback and suggestions. So, But now we know the Kirby cast is out there, so yep. that's good. That's right. Uh, I got a comment from Dr. Andrew, who, of course, does the Supergirl blog, Comic Box 
commentary and is part of the Newsboy Legion of Superbloggers. He wrote, uh, <laughs> that amethyst entry is the big winner here. You can totally see Russell's influence on the art, and the three inset picks are great for her. I love that character. Well due for a retry. I don't know about you, but if you've seen Dr. Ange on Twitter, he's been dropping hints about something he's doing with Amethyst. Hmm. He's been posting images of Amethyst comics, and he's like saying, like, soon, soon, so... I don't know what's I don't know what's happening. I hope it's not a podcast because if it isn't, because if it is, it's not part of our network. He hasn't said anything, which would really make me upset. So uh, I don't know, but he's got something in the works. And I have to say this about Ange: I always, every so often, I pitch him a crazy idea for a time I want him to be on a show with me, and he always says yes, which I appreciate because I just pitched <laughs> him something last night, and it's a credibly dumb, silly idea, and he's like, "Yeah, sure, let's do it." So I was like, "I love you, Doctor." If you're doing House 2, the second story, without me, I'm going to be seriously pissed. I'm just no, saying. you're not okay? doing that. That's not and that's, that's not an April Fool's Day joke. Okay, folks? That's legit right we there. We are not doing that. Um, Dr. Ange is one of the nicest guys. I mean, not only is he fun to talk to, he's generous, he's kind-hearted, he's, he's kind, he gives people gifts. I mean, God, what a great guy. Amazing. So, um, Anyway, Dr. Ange goes on to say, I'm a big fan of Hawk and Dove. He doesn't look too bulky in this pic. See, Rob? Uh, surprised his tiny inset picture uh, of what he looked at underneath the costume wasn't touched on. What he's talking about is at that point in the Hawk and Dove series, they had revealed that one of the forms of Hawk was like this crazy, he's got hair everywhere, he's like bestial and stuff. It all tied to the Lords of Chaos. There's a reason we didn't talk about it, Ange. It's ridiculous. Anyway, uh, also surprised you didn't mention the Secret Origins episode with Ryan Daly and me and Paul Hicks. Paul Hicks, Paul Hicks. Also, no mention of my letters printed in that run of Hawk and Dove. Well, Ange, there you go. Now it's been set on the air. And it will never be mentioned again. Uh, and lastly, that Wotan page was the first one where I thought, wow, I really prefer the original Magnola for the win. Hmm. Well, I, I think it's a tough one. It's a toss-up because I think both of the Wotan entries in Who's Who were just spot-on gorgeous. So. Uh, then we heard from Anthony Durso, the Toy Room, who does a bunch of custom Mego boxes. He says, I was a big fan of the updated format when it came out, over the, but over the years, it's just been inconvenient to look for something in the loosely format. A bit cumbersome in hindsight. Yeah, there's a lot of great art in there, but there's also a lot of uh, not-so-great art. And the characters and concepts that really rarely rate, I'm sorry, uh, and characters and concepts that really shouldn't rate a page in any format. I guess I prefer more of the classic art and artists of the original Who's Who. It's timeless. The loosely update is very much a product of its time, and some of it hasn't aged well for me. It actually seems a little more dated than the original run does. Hmm. I, you know, Anthony, I think where that comes from for me is that uh, this version of Who's Who is very much a snapshot of 1990. It really is. Whereas the original Who's Who really was a look back over 50 years. So it's, I, I think that may be why it feels a little more timeless. So that's my two cents on that. Then we'll hear from buddy Roger Preeb, who does uh, some great DVD interviews. I can get one with Jerry Conway. It's fantastic. Roger did. You should check those out. He writes, six months ago, a comic book store uh, by me was having a half-off sale, and they had the whole set of Loose Leaf Who's Who in binders for 30 bucks. So he got a half-off. He got all 16 issues in both binders for only $15. Woo! Great job, Roger. Heck of a buy. Heck of a buy. They heard from our buddy Sphinx Magoo. He writes in to say a quick word on the Orion entry, and my apology. Um, he says, uh, at this point in the New God storyline, done by Mark Evanier and Paris Collins, Orion was trying to fit in with the population of New Genesis. If I recall correctly, Light Ray pointed out to Orion that even though Orion was born on Apocalypse, he spent the majority of his life on New Genesis, and he still carried himself as though he was from Apocalypse, and even though he espoused the benevolent teachings of High Father. Orion, being Orion, changes his outer appearance, but was still all teeth clenchy as ever. The look didn't last long, with Orion declaring something along the lines of a leopard can't change its spots. Huh, that's very interesting. Thank you, Sphinx. 
Heard from our buddy Luke Giaconetti. We already talked a little bit about him. Uh, he shared some thoughts on Mr. Nobody. He says, I became familiar with this character during the Keith Giffen Doom Patrol run, where this shadowy organization called MSE was a constant thorn in the side of the Doom Patrol. MSE stood for Mr. Somebody Enterprises, as Mr. Nobody had finally become somebody and was now white instead of black. I had forgotten about that. That's really cool. I love Keith Giffen. Then regarding Darkseid, going back to the Kirby issues, he was portrayed as being rational and even keeled. Very, quote, lawful evil on the alignment chart. Uh, I'm sure I will get bashed for referencing the Forever People. Yes, you will. <laughs> but in an issue of that series, Desaad had trapped the people in a torture chamber, and Darkseid excuses himself from the proceedings, saying that he has no interest in Desaad's cruelty. I think we've gotten away from that thoughtful and philosophical portrayal of Darkseid. Although when Jim Starlin handled the New Gods, he stuck to that characterization. All right, we heard from Iced D. You know, we had a lot to say about Chris Franklin in the hills of Kentucky drinking up uh, his moonshine. And Ice D says, Chris Franklin, Chris Franklin is classy. He drinks bourbon, not moonshine. <laughs> and then, I don't know, maybe maybe he does. Although Chris says he doesn't. All right, Chris lies, though. Um, it's all the drinking. Anyway, uh, then we heard from Dial C for comment. He says, having finally caught up with all the Who's Who episodes, this was a real good new episode. I do want to mention the Amethyst cartoon you say Hanna-Barbera Hanna was supposedly putting together. I've never heard of that, but they did a cartoon called Wildfire that, looking at the plot, is pretty much the exact same plot of Amethyst. Had exactly the same premise of a girl... Uh, being a princess from another dimension, being sent to Earth as a baby, being adopted, and then later finding out she's a princess and going back and forth from both dimensions trying to free her kingdom. If there was an Amethyst cartoon at the time being considered by Hanna-Barbera, it's most likely that it didn't work out and they decided to use the premise here for their own cartoon. Dude! I, I didn't remember hearing about that. See, that's, I'm sorry, go ahead. I was going to say, that's awful. I mean, that's basically what ABC did when they were in negotiation for Fables from, um, from Vertigo, and it didn't work out, so they went and created Once Upon a Time. You know, I think we have been doing who's who for so long that we forget because I remember hearing about that and going onto YouTube and finding like the credits to Wildfire uh, and stitching it on the end of an episode. I don't remember. Really? Okay. It, it wouldn't have been the first. That would have been the first episode of who's who we ever did. I'm sure I didn't do that, but maybe Amethyst got like an updated listing in like she did. 90? She did. Yeah. I bet you that's what I have to go back and find that one. I bet you that's what because I literally <laughs> remember going on YouTube and finding that that. That um, opening sequence and being like, yeah, that's okay. Amethyst. Yep. Yeah, you know, it probably we, we probably did update eighty seven. Yep. We probably covered Amethyst, and then in the feedback, people probably told us that, and you would have stitched it on there. Yep. And I no recollection because yep. I'm old. So. You've been doing the show for nineteen years. <laughs> uh, we got a comment from Jeff R, and he says, "I didn't catch it, but how was Wotan indexed? Hero, villain, or wimping out with supernatural? <laughs> Wimp, <laughs> wimping out. I'm wondered. Uh, I'm wondering if that binary distinction is going to get them in trouble before the run's over. So yeah, that's that's my whole grief with that thing is because it's like, what's Catwoman? Right, right. You well, know? she's a villain at that point. Oh, all right, but uh, yeah, I don't know. It's just well, I don't know. I, I assume she is. We'll find out when we get to anyway, her entry. Okay. Now, Cisco did confirm, by the way, that Wotan got supernatural. So. Right. Uh, and then Jeff goes on to say, anyhow, onto the subject of omissions. Because, you know, Jeff gives our egregious, egregious omissions of the month in the old versions of Who's Who. This time it's difficult because the alphabet's not, you know, in order. So he goes, um, onto the subject of omissions, I probably will do a list of about 10 to 16 characters at the end of the series. But I really don't want to spoil myself on future issues content. That said, the first issue is special. It had a job of, well, being the first, giving a full tour of the DC Universe. And it mostly did that. It gave a representation of every currently active team book in the DC except one. Would it have killed them to put one member of the acronym Legion, like, you know, Legion 90 in there? That's a good point, Jeff. Good point. 
Uh, I heard from my buddy Adam Ackerman, who goes by Centaurin. He goes, I think with fire, they were trying to find a way to have a character uh, that had been a honeypot as a backstory, but how much could they do that while still following the comics code? Um, this led me to Urban Dictionary to look up honeypot. Ah! Now I know. Okay. So the idea was uh, essentially they were trying to say that he thought they created fire at, with her spy background to imply someone that would sleep around with the enemy to get information. So um, that's what he's implying. All right, we get a comment from someone just named Grrr. I may have an explanation as to why Rob remembers getting this issue while attending the Kubert School. I was eagerly waiting for this book to come out in June of 1990, but it ended up getting delayed for a month, so it didn't come out until maybe late July. It was probably still on the stands in August, because I think it delayed some of the other issues by month as well. So Rob Schaub may have had it long enough for him to get it when he returned to the Kubert School. I, it's, I don't remember it being that way, but it's entirely possible. And as you all know, I, I'm getting old, too. My memory is not what it used to be. So anything is possible, Gurr. So do, I think Gurr's going for a no prize here. Did he earn it? I, I can't verify that. I really can't. Because I, I really do have a memory of being like seeing the first one while I was with the guys. But again, I could not have done that. So I, it's still a mystery. So there's no, there's no chance of you taking summer classes that year? <laughs> no. Cuber okay, School did well. not offer those. Oh, okay. All right. Just trying to think it through. Could have used them. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, we got a message from Martin Gray from the Too Dangerous for a Girl blog. And he says, witty writing or not, things like Blue Beetle's bug are just a waste of space. It's a flying ship with amazing stuff like a chair on rollers. Give me people, not things. Wow. I think Gandhi said angry... the same thing, Martin. What did you say? Gandhi said the same thing. <laughs> Angry man, that guy. I <laughs> uh, got a message from Chuck Coletta. He says, sorry, Tob, big fingers, small phone is my only defense. <laughs> Tob <laughs> Kelly. Chuck has those big Kirby fingers. Like big That's right. That's around right. He's using those for his new upcoming blog, I Spy uh, with My Little Lie Comics. Um, <laughs> yeah, the second bite of the apple with that joke. <laughs> and we heard from Diablo Frank. Ooh, Diablo Frank from oh, the World's boy. Fine Podcast Network. Uh, such shows like the Marvel Superheroes Podcast. Now, Frank has written, I kid you not, I, I did word count on this. 3,162 <laughs> words is what he responded for who's who number one. Oh, oh, my gosh. So, clearly, we're not going to read all of this, folks. Uh, I sort of just pissed me. I, I love how Rob didn't highlight any of it. He just skipped all of it. So, way to go. Uh, so, I will go through some of Frank's feedback here. He goes, uh, the only way Ohatmu Master Edition could claim any form of superiority over this edition is who is that they use cardstock on every page. I would forgotten about that. That's true. Uh, but then he goes on to bash using cardstock in a, in a binder because it makes it hard to flip through. So, all right. Uh, he says, I like the supernatural heading when applied lot. Here you go, Rob. Here's your supernatural, the way it should be done. I like the supernatural heading when it's applied logically. Dr. Fate is a superhero with magical power, so he should have the red superhero border. Death is a fluid perceived embodiment of a universal constant that is beyond human moral constructs and is therefore supernatural. I think it's a very good distinction, Frank. Well done. Me too. Yeah, I agree with that. Um, now, it could get messy with villains, though. You know, a uh, villain like Wotan. He's kind of a villain. He's kind of supernatural. That's a tough one. I'll throw throwing at you, Frank. Anyway, um, he goes on to say about Blue Beetle's bug. Now, this sort of addresses Martin Gray's comment, I suppose. Uh, it's a nice enough custom superhero transport, but I can't get excited over the standard shot of, from a period comic tilted so that I'm seeing the action from the most static angle possible. Watchmen ruined me for the straight-on shots of the bug, too. I keep waiting for Booster Gold to deploy crowd control protocols against Occupy Wall Street or a woman's march. Oh, my gosh. If you haven't read uh, Watchmen, that probably makes no sense, folks. But if you have, that is freaking hysterical. 
Uh, goes on to say the definitive directory of the DC Universe was created to both celebrate and serve as a tombstone over the grave of 50 years of the company's history. Who's Who Update 87 and 88 sucked because they focused exclusively on that year publication with low-quality green talent and properties. Who's Who in the DC Universe was a huge improvement by offering a more comprehensive look at the current timeline after it had a few years to build new history in need of some codification and benefited from a more contemporary talent in their prime. I like looking at the loose leaf art more, and the text is more vital, but I prefer flipping through a comic book over delicately sifting through a binder. I also wish DC had looked back and done more historical mis- materials missed in pre- past issues. Yep. Uh, but I also dug how the now the loose leaves were. The definitive directory is often hoary, dredging up a lot of old crap presented by old fogies. But the 90s edition feels smaller and perhaps too narrow. I really enjoy having a snapshot of a specific piece of comic book history, but see the missed opportunities in cringe-inducing chromium. But I think we all agree this is way better than the updates. I, I agree with everything you just said, but he is really all over the board there. I mean, he's like praising it, then bashing it, praising it, bashing it. Really, I, he's struggling with himself there, Frank, I think. Anyway, uh, then he talks about Darkseid. This is, this blew my freaking mind, okay, about Darkseid. He goes, it's weird to think how relatively new Darkseid was at the time, especially in relation to his perhaps most famous influences from just a little bit later in the decade. For contrast, Deadpool today is almost 50% older than Darkseid was in 1990. All right, so I busted out and did some math here. Seriously, when this Who's Who was published, we talked a lot about Darkseid last time. Darkseid was, like, super established at that point, you know, the Super Friends cartoon and everything. Anyway, Darkseid in 1990 was a 20-year-old character. Right. All right? Deadpool today is a 27-year-old character. <laughs> WTF. That blows my freaking mind. Because Darkseid, to me, is, like, so established in DC continuity. Even at that time in 1990, he was the big bad, you know? Because he'd done Legends and all this stuff. But, man, that is crazy. Absolutely freaking crazy. It's all about the tacos. Uh, anyway, uh, burritos, whatever. Chimichanga. That's what's chimichanga. All right. About Ma and Pa Kent. So, I praised Ma and Pa Kent and talked about how that was my pa, Ma and Pa Kent. Well, Frank didn't take his crazy pills that day. And he wrote in, Ma and Pa Kent are Superboy supporting characters. They die to twist the knife in Clark's invulnerable gut that regardless of his godlike powers, he can't save everyone, even those closest to him. If you kill off Pa and have a hottie play Ma... Uh, continuing on with their life if you're doing a Peter Parker. If you have them both live, it reinforces the narrative as of Superman as the perfect white dude living an idyllic fantasy free from heavy complications while dis- diminishing the roles of the people who are supposed to define his adult life. If you need sounding boards, that's the role for Lois or Jimmy or Perry. I care about Superman as a twice-orphaned immigrant. I don't care about a corn-fed Kansas sharing a milk with his parents while, de- while deliberating how best to wield his awesomeness in service to the American way. Carrie Gamble is good enough... <laughs> Sorry, Gary Campbell is a good enough artist to draw two tombstones and make that work. <laughs> Just another reason why I hate the Carlin era of books. Wow, folks, this is why this is a beautiful country. Everyone is allowed their free speech, and everyone is allowed to be insanely wrong, as Frank is here. Although a lot of people agree with you, Frank, that uh, Mom and Pa Kent shouldn't have been around, but I love them. So, uh, about Orion, this is the huge embarrassing moment for me. I bashed pretty hard on that Paris Cullen's drawing Orion and that crazy-ass costume, and Frank drops a knowledge bomb on me and goes, it's odd that Shag forgot that this is the costume that Orion wore during his JLI stint. (gasps) Oh my gosh. You know, I I did a reread uh, of of all the trades. They only go up through issue like 36 or so of the Justice League of America, so I haven't finished rereading the rest of the series yet, and that's where it happens, and I can't believe I forgot that. I'm so embarrassed. 
uh, <laughs> I did. I am reading one portion of Frank's uh, comment. It was one of his footnotes. He has yes, he has footnotes to his uh, comments. Uh, he mentions a thing. He mentions referencing something about a single exhaustive episode, and then he says it would, however, be offensively stupid to try and cram all of Kenneth Johnson's V into a single podcast. Any idiot could tell me that. <laughs> yeah, that's directed solely at me, yes, because I'm planning an episode for this year about the V phenomena, not a deep dive into V. He wants me to launch a V minute podcast. Okay, guys, I'm not kidding. And he, I mean, I get furious texts from him in the middle of the night that I'm refusing to do a V minute podcast uh, and that I want to cover the whole phenomena one episode. He is furious with me. I think it's because I've asked him to cover the on, the, 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 on, the weekly TV series. Maybe that's why he's mad. I don't know. But uh, yeah, he's pretty angry about that. <laughs> he's an angry man. All right. Uh, then we heard from Jimmy McGlinchey from our Irish JLI embassy and also had a recent guest appearance on Midnight the Podcasting Hour. So uh, Jimmy writes in to go, Challengers of the Unknown. He enjoyed the Tim Sale Jeff Loeb trade paperback on this when he came out a few years ago. And it also included an unpublished JLI quarterly story by that team, which reconciled the multi-man appearance in that miniseries with the simultaneous appearances of multi-man in the Injustice League. I read some of the original tales in the Showcase Presents volumes, but they tended to be much of the sameness to them. Would you agree that sales art improved substantially? I'm sorry. Uh, he would agree that sales art improved substantially since that drawing and when the miniseries came out. There you go. There's another positive vote for the sale lobe tra- uh, challengers. He goes, Fire. Excellent art by Adam Hughes. After the Giffen D. Mateus run, she was not used to great effect. Jurgens turned her into a valley girl. Jones uh, made her an extremely needy and emotional after Ice's death. And even Ostinger didn't treat her all that well in the one-off issue of Martian Manhunter. Greg Rucka, though, did manage to turn it around in the new Checkmate series post-Infinite Crisis. By the way, if you haven't read Greg Rucka's Checkmate series after Infinite Crisis, definitely do it. It's so good. Uh, Mon Pa Kent, beautiful gamble art, and I feel like it's a very underrated artist at the time, and an excellent piece on the Kents who were part of what made Superman great in the post-crisis era. There you go, Frank, in your face. Ocean Master, he uh, he tends to be thought of as the Aquaman villain that's not Black Mana, doesn't he? Sorry, Rob. Uh, he was used well in the Throne of Atlantis storyline, but I felt they were building to another big storyline involving him. But that seemed to be that seems to have been gone by the wayside. Yeah, that's uh, that's true. And uh, yeah, you're right, Jimmy. Uh, yeah, I mean Aquaman has basically two villains that everybody knows. Uh, I'm a little scared that they're both appearing in the Aquaman movie. Maybe a little too much, but I guess we'll find out. What's the what's the second movie going to be? Flying Fish and Scavenger, I guess. I, I believe so. Yes. So is um, uh, you know that's a question. The the aborted Aquaman series that um, oh gosh, I'm I'm it's so late at night. I'm slipping on names. The Justin, guy who Justin was, Hartley. Right, and it was going to be Alan Davis, wasn't it? Or who was going to do the art? Wait, wait, what are you talking about? The the aborted Aquaman miniseries that didn't oh, happen. Series, I thought you meant TV series. Um, oh no no, I'm sorry. The the, the mini series. The, yes. The yes. Alan Davis was going to draw that. Yes. Yeah. Was that going to be an Ocean Master focused story? Yeah, it was going to be the same story. Okay, that's what I'm wondering. So maybe yeah. that's you know part of the reason for Ocean Master sort of being prevalent at this point. Okay. Anyway, uh, we heard from uh, I don't know how to, Mike Dens Dens. I don't know. That's that's the best attempt at that, Mike. I say things wrong all the time, so forgive me. Uh, as much as I enjoyed the original Who's Who comics as a kid, I never got into the. And, and, by the way, Mike's new. Welcome, Mike. Okay. Uh, as much as I enjoyed the original Who's Who comics as a kid, I never got into the loose leaf editions because I, at the time, didn't think they were quote real comics. <laughs> I mean, I took my Who's Who comics on camping trips just in case I couldn't remember the origin of Kite Man. I guess. <laughs> but now I, uh, I. 
But now to take a binder that won't fit my backpack with sheets that might fall out? No, thank you. Having said that, I like hearing the joy in these editions have brought to everyone from the listings and the artists uh, to the way people stored them. Did ever, did anyone not put them in binders and just put them in a comic box? Or is that crazy talk? Well, Mike, uh, they kind of addressed it in the comments. They were actually too wide. You couldn't put them in a comic box. I guess you could put them in like a magazine box or something. Like a magazine bags might have worked. But uh, for the most part, binders really did make the most sense. This is also keep on. This is also the era of trading card insanity. So nine pocket loaders, where it's like everybody was buying those for their trading cards. So the idea of putting these in binders wasn't that far too far of a stretch for people. So, then we heard from Jeff Tischer. He says, another great episode. It instantly took me back to when I was in middle school and these came out. These were, book, uh, these were books I wasn't allowed to get in at the time. All the proto-Vertigo books like Suicide Squad, Green Arrow, and such. So, who's who was a glimpse through that keyhole? That's awesome. That makes perfect sense. You know, like, Think about that. My parents won't let me buy the suggested mature readers. Ooh, but I can read the who's who entry. That's really cool, Jeff. I love that. Uh, he says, Brotherhood of Dada. Because of this entry, Dadaism has always held a certain fascination for me. When I was in art school, I remember I was one of the few who already knew of the Dada movement and instantly understood the importance of Ducamp, uh, Man Ray, and Ernst. Also, I was fascinated by the quiz and realized I, and probably everyone who on this network, would be her arch nemesis. Since as a comic nerd, I could come up with superpowers easily. Love that. Then Challenges, challenges of the Unknown. You know who could do an amazing classic Challengers? Carl Kieser, Kiesel and Tom Grummet. They prove their skills on Superboy, and they can handle Kirby creations respectfully while still doing new and fun stuff with the properties. Uh, I'll respond to that first by saying, yes, you're right. Kiesel and Tom Grummet could, and they're sort of doing it right now. Um, in fact, Frank says it here. Kiesel and Grummet kind of did a Challenger series in something called Section Zero, which they successfully revived via Kickstarter last year. And I'm one of the uh, I'm one of the folks who Kickstarted uh, Section Zero. I'm so excited! I get updates from Carl Kiesel all the time about what's going on uh, with development of Section Zero. I cannot wait for it to come out. I'm sure they'll make it available for sale other ways too. But uh, it looks so freaking good. Carl Kiesel, Tom Grummet, new comics, awesome! I can't wait. Uh, and then he talks about fire. She says, was she naked when she powered up? Where did her clothes go? And while we can agree on the beauty of Hughes' cheesecake, it's the little touches, like uh, B doing raspberries at Jack-O-Lantern, that really make him a stellar artist. I agree about the, the flourishes that are wonderful. Uh, as far as her being naked, they never really talked about that, except later on they did in the uh, – I can't believe it's not the Justice League, the, the, the Super Buddies era. They did actually talk about it in that era. So, you know, you, you can interpret it which, however you want. It's funny to say she's naked, but, you know, she's not really, I don't think. Anyway, on the back cover, this is the most quintessential era of 90s patterning colors I have ever seen. If you look at and you look at the back, it does totally look very, very 90s. Because also, for some reason, my issue came with a paper version of the back cover to protect the real back cover. Uh, it was the only issue to have that. Yes, he's absolutely right. It's in my binder as well. There is a there's a just a flimsy sheet of paper that's like the same thickness as one of the entries that went over the um, over the back cover. It's identical to it. It's very strange. But I, I had some, they never did it again. I guess it was they're still trying to figure out the process at that point. <laughs> I got a message from Tim Price, and he says, Stanley and his monster was so much fun. I like always remembered the Secret Origins issue. It's also a great fun to read the whole trifecta of Foglio's DC minis, Angel and the Ape, Stanley and his monster, and Plastic Man. Yeah, it's a shame that we both forgot that Secret Origins bit. And, and uh, Tim is right. Phil Foglio's stuff... He did at that time was was all really good. Those three miniseries were all a lot of fun. Or, or Xenophile, if you want to read that instead. But um, he was drawing porn comics too, guys. Um, Thank you for bringing that up. Well, it's, that's what made a name for him. But anyway, I I forgot about him doing Angel of the Ape and um, 
and Plastic Man. I wonder if you if you did read all three of them together. I wonder if there's like a through line there that you can see. That'd be that'd be a, that'd be a fun discussion, you know. Anyway, um, Max Romero, get on then. <laughs> Noah Tarno, go ahead, Rob. Right, thank you. <laughs> he says, agree that Tim Sales' challenges of the unknown entry is way, way off. This was the first time I'd seen his work, and it looked hopelessly amateurish to me, like something out of a dime store coloring book. I couldn't understand how anyone thought it was professional quality. It was a pleasant surprise a few years later when I read his Batman issues and developed an appreciation for his style. Yeah, he found a way to make it work. There's no doubt about it. But man, yeah, that first, that likewise, my first exposure to Tim Sale was was that that listing. I was like, what the hell is this? It was a rough start. I, I think someone just saw potential in him. Yeah. And said, yeah, let's get him in the first issue. And it just didn't work yeah. out. It yeah. happens. So, by the way, Noah uh, Tarno is our buddy Triv Triv from uh, last ah, okay. episode. We did the we did the uh, uh, in, top, in iTunes review. So thank you. Uh, Noah goes on to say how I organize my loose leaf entries. At first, it was according to the color-coded categories, but I recall organizing them once or twice. The only specific scheme I can remember is ordering them by date of first appearance. Dude, this is the second person that organized them by first appearance. That's crazy. Um, I rem- it's not crazy. It's, it's crazy awesome, but wow. Uh, I remember debating something like, whether winter 1940 would come should go before or after February 1940. I guess so, since winter could be January. Then again, it might also be December. I never saw the binders at my LCS, so I put the pages in black plastic binders I was issued at school, decorated with a school's crest. Yes, we had a crest. I went to one of those schools. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Shrift Triff. Much appreciated. Then we're from our buddy Ward Hill Terry, who says, Amanda Waller, what heroic thing has she ever done? Because we talked about her categories, whether it should be heroic or should be sporting cast. And he says, what heroic thing has she ever done? I'm serious. As far as I'm concerned, she's no better than a supervillain head honcho. She has her team of villains commit crimes and manipulates them through threats and coercion. She is the embodiment of Big Brother government. Wow. Pretty harsh words, Ward Hill Terry. Uh, I think there's some people that may support your position, but wow, man. Strong words. Uh, Then we heard uh, from Philemon, president of the Jericho fan club. (laughs) That meets in the tree fort over on 5th Street. Uh, he says, I've already admitted that this loose lo- – <clears throat> I'll get this right, folks. I promise. He says, I've already admitted that this loose-leaf version isn't my cup of tea. Interesting to hear even the editor agrees with me. But I appreciate another chance to see Jericho. He is the king among these characters, and even the splash page art supports that. <laughs> I like he, – he said the, my cup of team, by the way. Oh, whoops. Okay. <laughs> which, which I enjoyed. Uh, I, I imagine the Jericho fan club. Very, very quiet group when they get together. Uh, he <laughs> says, uh, oh, actually, finally, I am one of the bad combo geeks who actually did get a subscription to this title delivered <gasps> to my home. Mine never came rolled up. The heavy covers made that a challenge, I think. And this is probably why I have all the issues, as the 90s is when my interest in comics temporarily waned. Wow, okay. Now, Philemon's famous for saying the opposite of what makes sense, okay? And last issue, uh, we were talking about the way people organize their entries, and this is what happened. Uh, Philemon writes in, finally, I'd like to point out that Shag mentioned one of my comments and then used it to prove to Rob that everyone agreed with his point about color coding. His belief that I represent the voice of the people is seriously (laughs) going to affect my representation as a contrarian. Oh, Philemon, Philemon, Philemon. Don't worry. Uh, I'm sure you're going to have some comments on Beast Boy this episode. That'll turn that all around. Don't worry. We'll know the true you. Uh, heard from Ice D again, and he said, Amethyst eventually received a cartoon series as part of the short-lived DC Nation initiative. It was a series of shorts in an anime-ish style, totaling uh, just over nine minutes, and you can watch them all on YouTube. Very cool. Very cool. A little Joe Cabrera writes in. He says, Shag said Rob was on Coke. This explains a lot about past episodes. <laughs> As George Carlin once said, what does who's who feel like? It makes you feel like reading more who's who. 
Oh my gosh. Uh, now, one comment about Little Joe Cabrera's comments is this actually was an, a message that he left on an old episode. He left this uh, just recently on the Who's Who Update 87, Volume 4. So uh, th that's what this is referenced to. The next one is Shag was praising John Byrne for the post crisis version of Lex Luthor as his favorite take on the character. But I heard that Marv Wolfman, who came up with the brilliant scientist, billionaire, industrialist take on the character. Anyone out there knew which one of them propo first proposed it? Uh, to answer your question, I think we covered this in comments a long time ago, but uh, as I recall, Call. Marv Wolfman came up with the idea of first turning um, Vandal Savage into that sort of persona, the, the billionaire, basically the kingpin uh, persona, and it got rejected, and then he hung on to it, and then when Byrne was coming around on Man of Steel, Marv Wolfman proposed it to Byrne and said, what do you think, John? Take a look at this, but don't you either give me a yes or a no. You can't change anything. And so John gave it a yes, so therefore that version of Lex is sort of credited to Marv Wolfman, not to John Byrne. Uh, so that's how I understand that story. If I got it wrong, Michael Bailey, let me know. Cool. I like that idea about Vandal Savage. Uh, Jeff Peterson wrote in. He says, I really like the format where Shag's enthusiasm takes over to the point where he seems to forget Rob is there until Rob cuts him down with an acerbic comment. Rob, you're a man after my own heart. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this may be the first time we went over two hours without viewing anything from a 10,000-foot level. That may be a new record. <laughs> Hi, Jeff. I, I do love you, Jeff. Screw you, Jeff. Um, <laughs> I mean that with the kindest heart. Uh, no, actually, all right, Jeff, I'm going to take you down a bit, buddy. Uh, you're wrong because I, the 10,000-foot level is only when I do a recap of a story, not for who's who. So, But I will give you points because your comment was damn funny. So fair enough. <laughs> I'm going right. to leave a mark. I hate both of you. Uh, then we heard from our buddy J.C. Carlos. He goes, the opening theme is like an Elseworlds comic where Tenacious D loves DC Comics instead of Dio and Iron Maiden. <laughs> I shared that with our artists who do the theme, Daniel and the Cynical Adams and Ashton Burge, and they were over the moon. Daniel Adams says, this is possibly the best comment I have, a compliment I've ever received. And Ashton said, we'll take it. <laughs> awesome. Then from our buddy Sean Ross, who is part of the Pulp to Pixel podcast network and does one of my favorites, the Marvel Secret Wars podcast. Awesome. Him and uh, Gregor Ruse was doing that. And he says, deciding whether to listen to this now or save it for the upcoming flight is causing me legitimate stress. <laughs> I'm so glad that we're must listen. That's awesome. That's fantastic. Uh, Michael O'Brien wrote in to say, I think this has come up before, but I can't recall the specifics. Uh, from Shag's backstory, it sounds like DC came up with the loose leaf format first. Is that correct? Well, I'm glad Siskoid jumped in here because I would have said yes. But Siskoid says no. It was actually the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons loose leaf monster compendium that was first. Then Who's Who and then the underwhelming Ohatmu uh, Master Edition. Hm. Look at that. Who knew? Dungeons and Dragons, bunch of nerds. Uh, then Sean McLaughlin wrote in to say, I subscribed yesterday to the podcast and don't know why I didn't sooner. I would also recommend the JLI podcast that I've been listening to ever since the beginning. You know, Sean seems like a man of discerning taste. Hmm. Uh, and then Michelle Fife sent us a picture of his Who's Who binders and his Fire and Water podcast t-shirt, and he says, ready like Freddy. <laughs> awesome, Michelle. Now, of course, Michelle is an amazing comic book creator. Uh, created Capra, and also is doing a, uh, a series for Image on Bloodstrike. Isn't that amazing? He's, he's resurrecting one of Rob Liefeld's old creations. That's awesome. Way to go, Michelle. Michelle is too cool to be this nerdy. He is. He is. <laughs> and he talks to us. We don't deserve this. <laughs> Makes no sense. Makes no sense at all. He must think we're somebody else. Uh, Zach Smith Sabbath wrote, uh, he said, he added somebody on Twitter, at Leonard Pierce. Do you ever listen to that Who's Who podcast? They are way more upbeat and corny than you, but there's some interesting trivia. I, I'm sort of fascinated by who this Leonard Pierce person is, but okay. Thanks, Zach. We'll take it. 
then Brad Glenn wrote in to say, uh, now Brad lives in Australia. Okay, first of all, and we had talked about the binders and stuff like that. And he says, yes, I wanted those binders, and they were very rare in Australia back then. Hmm. Look at that. Interesting. Uh, then Tom Pan Reese from Pop Culture Affidavit and uh, the Nom Podcast in Country, he writes in to say, if you haven't listened to the Fire and Water Podcast, talk about the issue number one of Loose Leaf Who's Who, go now. Go for your enjoyment. Here is my copy of Fire, entry by Adam Hughes, signed by Adam Hughes. You bastard. Terribly jealous. <laughs> Daniel R. Budnick, he wrote, he wrote in, he said, With the Who's Who podcast back and super fun as always, I've decided to re-listen to the original 26-episode run. Biff is in the house. My goodness, oh my Daniel. Gosh. You must have a lot of free time. Well, he wrote that back issue article, uh, Feathered Hair, you know, Shaira de Farah. So. Uh, we heard from Sean from Sergey Bomba again on Twitter. He says, Nothing better than spending a lonely Sunday afternoon uh, listening to a dense Who's Who cast, organizing comics, and following along with my binder. In proper order, safe but wise, but safe. Remember last episode, we talked about how people ordered their who's who, and he had done it in issues format because it was safe. <laughs> you really loved that comment last time. Then uh, I put out a bunch of the art from this episode, uh, from issue one, out on Twitter, and I tagged all the artists that were involved in it. Nobody paid any attention to it. Thanks, guys. But uh, Mark Badger noticed, uh, the guy who drew Darkseid, and he commented on the tweet. Uh, I don't know that he listened to the episode, but he commented on our tweet, and he says, DC Comics never understood how to color, never will understand color, and never should use color. And, uh, and this is his quote, not mine. Said the grumpy old guy looking at how the dumbass editor or colorist ruined his work once again. <sighs> yeah, because we all said that Darkseid entry, the coloring was not great on Mark Badger's art. So, Sorry, Mark. I, I, I'm sorry if I brought up a, a painful subject. So. Now, Rob, you found something. What is this? Uh, well, I did. I forget. I to, whoever did this, I forget. Uh, and we take and uh, you need to take credit. So, if you're listening to this, please chime in. Somebody uh, wrote to us on Twitter and said, "Will you be talking about the who's who from the who's who's from the Golden Age uh, DC oh, comics?" Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you and I were like, "What the hell are you talking about?" We had no idea. So I went digging. And I found in two issues of Leading Comics, which is like one of the most boring names for a comic series ever in history, Leading Comics <laughs> number three and Leading Comics number four. That was a series that starred the Seven Soldiers of Victory. And mm. it came with these little feature pages called Comic Quizzes. And it was, what do you know about your five favorite features? And there's like a true and false, fill in the blanks. And it's all questions about the Shining Knight, Crimson Avenger, Green Arrow. And there's a section called Who's Who? And it has questions. What champion of justice works in a museum? What famous character wears a red Okay, well, hold on. Let's do it. What champion of justice works in a museum? Hawkman. Wrong. The Shining Knight. The Shining Knight. Oh, right. These are all, of course, Seven Children's Victory. That's going to be the answer. What famous character wears a red feather in his cap? Well, Rob. That's Green Arrow. That's correct. Who is Oliver Queen? Again, Green Arrow. Yes. Who wears two guns but never fires them at anyone? Vigilante. Correct. And with which character should the color red be associated? That would be the Crimson Avenger, of course. Very good. Thank you for talking down to me. Uh, and then the, there it's was, very easy. <laughs> and then there was another one. It was who's who. Who is old Billy Gunn? I have no idea. Uh, the constant companion of Greg Sanders, the vigilante. Okay. All right. I'm actually turning. I'm turning upside oh, down. That's right. You can read, read the answers this. upside down. What famous crime fighter always works alone? That's the Shining Knight. Uh, that is correct. Yeah. And then which three famed crime crushers wear domino masks? That would be Speedy, the Crimson Avenger, and the Green Arrow. Were you reading the answers? Did you know that? I knew that. There's a picture of them right below. Oh, crap. I didn't scroll that far. Okay. <laughs> so, but anyway, I, I have no idea. 
I have no idea how many pages or how many comics featured this who's who little quizzes, but nevertheless, there they are. Well, Zoom Yukonori was able to identify the exact comics uh, that those were posted from, so I suspect he's probably really good at this research. So, Zoom, I put you on that task, sir. Let us know if there's more of these who's who entries because they're super fun, and uh, we're not going to extend it any more episodes to cover those. We just did. So there we go. <laughs> All right, folks, up next, a little bit of a special treat. We always have a segment at the end of who's who. We're going to get to it now, and for this time only, we're going to play a very special intro to the, to the segment. So, Rob, play it. Aqua Rob, Fire Shag, Lady Viper's quite the hag, Batman Jones, Lady Cop, Satin Satan, smoking hot, The Fortress of Solitude, Master Villain's Attitude, Nubia, Steampunk, Kid Lantern's made up, Bouncer does deflect, Astrolad to pass projects, Golden Age, Firestorm, Fireman, Feral. Wonder Woman, Superman, before the crisis began. Cal Durham, Domino, Professor Zoom, self cameo. Super duper Topo Quisp, Earth 2 Aquaman exists. Bonus page of Anti Lad has a phallus for a head. Superwoman and Lokai, the Crusader slipped and died. Human Squid, Flying Fish, Tira Sadie, Wiz Kids. Woozy Winks is so rotund, while I Ching speech is quite profound. A bandit name, Breakaway, so much more I have to say. GC had started with Who's Who. Zoom Yukonori's addendum has built such momentum. He had to start the Zoom's Who. And though Earth One's long gone, the entries still go on and on and on and on and on. Zooms Who? Zoom Yukonori's addendum to the definitive directory of the DC Universe. Part of Who's Who in the DC Universe, the Loose Leaf Edition. A very proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. And for this entry of Zooms Who, the definitive, uh, ad- the addendum to the definitive director of the DC Universe, we have Woozy Winks. What you think, Rob? Yeah, Zoom sent us this amazing custom uh, entry. I mean, all his entries are, are amazing. It's drawn by Joe Staten and Zoom Yukonuri. That's a hell of a combination. And, of course, Woozy Winks is Plastic Man's best pal. He first appeared in Police Comics number 13. He's 5'3", 294 pounds. Kind of sounds like me at the Kubert School. Uh, it's beautiful drawing of Woozy with his... Uh, polka dotted shirt and his pork pie hat and in the background all these wonderful surprints of him having adventures with plastic man and um uh, doffing his chapeau for a pretty girl wanting to be a detective with plastic man uh it's absolutely fantastic i love his group affiliation claims to be in the nbi it's <laughs> fantastic and in powers and weapons you wouldn't think that that uh, woozy Winks has powers but he does uh, it involves some magic and the enchantment of uh, a character named Zambi, and you can read all about that in the uh, when we post this on the FireAndWaterPodcast.com. Uh, and by the way, his full name: Wolfgang Winks. <laughs> and again, another classic, classic entry from Zoom. This is the kind of thing where uh, I really just want to print this out and just slot it in the book. 
Oh yeah. I mean, he took the time to put the great logo on there. Yeah. You there's certain the parts where you background everything. It's yeah, exactly. And like some of the colors are solid one color because that it matches probably the PMS color or something. And yep. then the others, you can see the dot pattern because it's a mixture of colors. Uh, there's a great shot of Plastic Man guarding, uh, uh, blocking a blast, trying to protect uh, Woozy there as he's walking away. It's just, it's great, absolutely wonderful. I love this so much. And it's interesting that the good luck powers that he has. Um, it sort of fits with the replacement character they came up with for the cartoon. You know, uh, Bad Luck Hula. You know, both are about luck. That's kind of interesting. They should have just stuck with Woozy. But anyway, beautiful entry. And yes, as Rob said, you will see this on the uh, Fire and Water Podcast Network page. Awesome. Well, folks, uh, up next is this is the chance where we thank everybody who shared our show on their social media, on Facebook and Twitter. It sounds like a very long list of names because it is a very long list of names, sort of like reading a phone book. But we want to recognize each one of these people because they really, truthfully, they helped promote the show. You know, they didn't just like it with a little heart. They actually took the time to repost it and promote it. Thank you so much. Each and every one of these folks are important to the Who's Who community and we love them and there's over 80 freaking names this time so uh rob when you start off i'll take the second half yep. uh, by the way uh talk about reading a phone book uh just before we recorded this uh zoom yukinori uh him again uh found a, a a an article in an old issue of comic scene where they talk about who's who and back then it was called dc directory which is like <gasps> the most boring name possible. Really? Yeah, so, I mean, thank God they decided to call it Who's Who, but can you imagine a book called DC Directory? Like, oh, my God, talk about it. That's, what, that's like when Crisis was just going to be called Universe. Universe. Yes, it's amazing. So good, good finds them. Anyway, yes, uh, these are the people who uh, retweeted or liked the show <laughs> over on Twitter. These uh, are the people in your neighborhood. <laughs> uh, these are the Daves I know and know. No, at 13th Dimension, at Adam of Gotham. I'm going to stop saying ad. Uh, Adam T., <laughs> Al Gerding, Barry Reese, Ben Jones, Between the Pages, Bill Beer, Cullum Nauer, Charlie Reads Comics, Chazzo, Chris Franklin, Chris Lewis, Christopher Ward, Chuck Rodriguez, Coffee and Comics Podcast, Comic Reflections, Daniel Doherty, Daniel R. Budnick, DC Comics Present Show, DC Comics Vault, DC in the 80s, DC OCD, Decca Black, Diablo Frank, and the Rolled Spine Podcast, Dr. Ange, Dr. G. Nerdologist, Dylan Bunny, Geeked, Greg Arujo. Jack Dower, Jared West, Jeff Hunter, Jeffrey Brown, Jeremiah Parker, Jeremy Klug, Jonathan Brown, Just a Doombot, <laughs> Justice's First Dawn, Justice Trek, the podcast, Kappa Pride Hulk, Connell, Kyle Benning, and his other entry, uh, his other Twitter handle of Transform and Rollout, Rob's favorite, uh, Legion Bloggers, Longbox Crusade, Luke Dobb, Man on the Wall, Martin Gray, Marvel Superheroes, Secret Wars, and Beyond, Max Romero, and his other account, It's Plastic Man, Mara of Zebel, Michael Bailey, Michael O'Brien, Michelle Fife, Miguel Angel Luke, maybe, <clears throat> sorry about that, uh, Mikey Flash, Neon Pixel, Nicholas Dark, PartisanCantina.com, Paul Hicks, Paul Hicks, Paul Hicks, Princess Firebird, Rad Adventures, which includes Warlord Worlds and Trekker Talk, Richard Field, Rob Deb, Russell Rosenkid, Ryan Daly, Sam Pietrasinski, sorry about that, Sam, S. Scott X, Siskoid, Straight Out of Gallifrey Podcast, Super Oli, Tamakiki, Kitty, wow, I'm all over the place, Tim Price, Tom Panarese, Trek Anomics, Trekbot, Zumi Kanori, and Zach Smith Sabbath. Thank you guys so much. We really, really appreciate your support. It really helps to get the word out on the show. That's how you get 91 comments on a show, folks, is these kind of people helping to spread the word and helping new people find the show. Thank you so very much. Well, Rob, tell them once more time where they can find some of these entries. You can go to fireandwaterpodcast.com. Yep, 
And uh, what, what social media do you want to promote this time, Rob? Because you, you have all of them. Uh, I want to promote myself going to bed. Okay, fair enough. All right, folks, find us on the interwebs. You know where to find us. You know where to put your comments, clearly. So head out there and start commenting now. The only thing left to say is, Rob, who's, who's next? next? Okay. Now, our next villain is the most black-hearted sorcerer in this world or any other. His powers as a master magician and evil mystic are more terrifying than anything else known to man. But he feels that an injustice has been perpetrated on the members of his villainous calling. So he would like to say a few words on behalf of his fellow super criminals. Let's hear it for Mordru. You probably can tell by looking at me, but we villains are different. We have different values, different problems, even different forms of entertainment. So to help you understand our point of view, I would like to list some of the simple pleasures we enjoy. <laughs> you may not be so anxious to abuse us. You try to understand what things amuse us. A brute who thinks torture is cute, or a cheat who finds larceny neat, or a swine who says murder's divine. That's entertainment. A flood turning cities to mud. <laughs> or a blaze that keeps burning for days. <laughs> or a quake even Richter can't take. <laughs> That's entertainment. Now it might be a blaze on the crops of Iran. A drought wiping out all the rice in Japan. Some great invention of man, like an aerosol sprayer that kills the ozone layer. A lout buys his grandmother's house, ups the rent, though she hasn't a cent. Granny's sweet, but she's out on the street. Oh, the world is a mess, but nevertheless, it's entertainment. few of my favorite things. <laughs> now the pain. Yes, the pain of a serious strain. The delight of a rattlesnake bite. And the grin when Luke and Walter Sertun. That's entertainment. Oh, a youth who's already uncouth wants to meet 
pretty girls on the street with a plan. The Jack the Ripper began. That's entertainment. Oh, I dig any big catastrophic device. A ship in the grip of a margin of ice. I think diseases are nice. A condition that's chronic. A plague that is bubonic. The jolt of my lightning bolt. I can use on any one that I choose. And right now, 